Today's episode is brought to you by Reef Builders, winner of Best of Howls, five years running. Reef Builders is a Tempe, Arizona-based, full-service design-build construction company. What's a design-build company? It means you deal with one company for everything. Reef Builders is able to take your vision and bring it to life by drawing your plans, producing photorealistic, high-resolution 3D renderings of your kitchen, baths, and more, helping you design and pick your finishes, and finally, executing that vision. With their years of building experience and a superior client experience, using tools such as online project management software through their client portal that allows you to see your renovation in real time. Whether you're in town, on vacation, or living in another state, you have access to job progress photos, your build schedule, financials, and much more anywhere in the world. So if you're looking for a complete bath or kitchen renovation, a complete home renovation, a custom home designed and built, or a boutique commercial project built out, Reef Builders can deliver it. Reef Builders. Your vision, their experience delivered. All right, so here we go. This is the second episode of the Tactical Hour. This time it's going to be... Again, with Chris Stewart and Chief Krushak. Uh, Chief Krushak is a retired assistant chief from the Phoenix Fire Department. I'm not going to go into uh, introducing him because, like always, I will c- completely fuck that up. So I'm going to let Chris Stewart introduce him, and then we're going to get into um, Chief Krushak's story. And today's episode is going to be a lot on crew development. We'll try and stick on that path. Uh, as you guys know, there is a potential to get off track multiple times, so I'll try to bring it back whenever we can. But, um, you know, go ahead, Chris. Well, uh, thanks again. Um, so uh, I, 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 I'll say it every time because I feel like I need to. I really appreciate this uh, this platform. This has been a lot of fun and, and, uh, uh, and motivating. So um, today uh, I have asked uh, Scott Krushak to join us Um uh, first and foremost, Scott is is uh, is a really really important friend of mine, and has been important to me for a long time, and uh, and was a big part of my career, my development, and and who I am, and what I do, and how I behave, and how I act, and and uh, so uh, and I think he has a ton to offer. Uh, um, had a ton to offer while he was on the Phoenix Fire Department, he has, and he still has a ton to offer. So like uh, like Hinton uh, that we've had on here previously. Uh, I'd like to talk to Scott about some 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 things uh, with regards to crew development because it's one thing that I think he was particularly good at, um, uh, especially as Captain Crew Shack, um, and then as he moved into uh, moved up in the organization and became Chief Crew Shack. So uh, Scott, I, I really appreciate you being here, and uh, uh, this should be a lot of fun. Yeah, and uh, thanks, Chris, for that introduction. And Brandon, thanks for uh, this platform again. Like I, like Chris was saying, you know, we need to be able to hit as many people as we can with the right information and the most seamless uh, method possible. It's everybody's busy these days and got a lot going on. And I found myself listening to this podcast on the way down here, so it thanks. was it was really uh, easy and seamless. And uh, learned a little bit from Chief Hinton. Nothing I didn't already know, but. Uh, he's uh, still as crazy as they come. I can see that's uh, that's refreshing. <laughs> yeah, uh, I don't think that goes away. <laughs> no. And uh, for me, <laughs> for me, you know, uh, I was on job for almost thirty-eight years, about almost uh, thirty-seven years and about nine months. And uh, that journey started way back in about nineteen seventy-eight for me. And uh, 
I was uh, I was at the ASU College of Engineering, sitting in a non-Euclidean geometry class, uh, <laughs> wondering what the fuck am I doing here? You're uh, a nerd too. <laughs> oh yeah. Oh, dude, trust me, dude. The the engineering gene in me is deep. Uh, um, so I was sitting in the that class, and uh, I was like, God, what am I doing? And is this what I really want to do? And uh, and I have my family had been in the engineering trades and, and all of them were doctors and mathematics type folks. And so I thought, well, this is what I'm supposed to do. And then a fire truck drives down the street and uh, and uh, the sirens are going and I'm looking around and all the dudes in the class are sitting there writing their non-Euclidean geometry calculations. And all the girls looked out the window to see the firefighters. So I said, fuck it. That's where I'm going to be. Two so, things that are undefeated <laughs> in the history of the world, women and water. <laughs> you just proved that again. Uh, so I, uh, I went and signed up. And, uh, of course, I went down to that, those days. It was at the Civic Plaza, you know, downtown. And there's two lines down there that day. It was pretty interesting. And those two lines, there's a whole bunch of serious guys in one line. And they're all looking at their notes and worried. And the other guy, the guys were screwing around laughing. It looks like they'd all had hangovers. So I got in the one where they're all screwing around <laughs> laughing. Found out later. The other line was the police line. Yeah, I could have guessed that. <laughs> you wouldn't make a good cop either. No, no, but I'm a rule bender, dude. Yeah. I am a rule bender, not a rule enforcer. Are we all? <laughs> so, uh, so I started that. I actually did not get hired, and it was, uh, it was, you know, I'm, I'm thinking, I'm, I'm the guy who's better than me. I'm the smartest thing, best thing since sliced bread. How could they not hire me? And, uh, meant to be a fireman. Uh, right. And I really, it was really a humbling experience for the, so then I decided I'm going to try, I'm not going to let this defeat me. So I really tried hard and, uh, did all the right things, went to, uh, the stations and talked to the neighbors that were all firefighters and, uh, uh, got to know what the job was about, and then I was better prepared. Took the Did test. Did you get all the Euclidean uh, engineering geometry <laughs> yeah. questions right on the test? You know, I did, but I did not bring that up in my interview because <laughs> I, I didn't know whether the interviewers would understand, so I didn't risk it at all. Hmm. Uh, and so I, I went through that and uh, got hired, and hired, and actually at the time had a big class about fifty. 52 folks in our class, and uh, I, I like to say uh, a very spiritual and enlightening experience the, <laughs> the Recruit Training Academy is, and uh, I still tell people as a recruit training officer, I told people the first day of the academy, whatever you knew before this day will go away. What you cease to exist, will you will be reborn into the Phoenix Fire Department or into the fire service, so prepare for that baptism. And... Uh, <laughs> And, uh, and I think that is true today. As we all know, anybody in the fire service, the guys that you went through that recruit training with are friends for life. You know everything about them. You know they're good, the bad, and the ugly about them. And you could walk up to them after not seeing them for 10 years and shake their hand and give them a big hug and pick up a conversation like you saw them the day before. When you went so, through the training academy, did they, were they doing any EMS stuff? Uh, so I can tell a funny story. Uh, so uh, John B. Dean was our EMT instructor. So nobody was, they had just started, I, this was 1980. So they had only been paramedics in the field and EMTs even for less than five years. And uh, so they decided they're going to turn us all into EMTs. 
So they take myself and Wally Kostelnik and a few other people. <laughs> Big and, thinkers. Oh, yeah. And they say, you're going to sit in a classroom for four hours a day, and we're going to make you an EMT. Oh, boy. Because uh, none of us, none of the EMS system was new, and none of us were EMTs. So John B. Dean did that and graded for spelling, so we all failed all our tests. Uh, but I did learn to spell ecchymosis, and that was one of the questions on one of the tests. And uh, uh, that was, uh, Wally never got that right, even when I gave him the answers on a slip of paper. He still <laughs> spelled it wrong. So, uh, yeah, so the EMS system was new. It was really an interesting, interesting time for, I'll say, the Phoenix Fire Department and I'll say the American Fire Service. Alan Brunacini had been the fire chief for about two years. And, uh, and we all know the legacy of Alan Brunacini and his impact in the American Fire Service. And so there was a lot of changes going on, a lot of really interesting things happening. And I was really lucky. I had uh, two recruit training officers that uh, actually cared and uh, wanted to develop us. And again, I'll never forget the things that they told me to this day, uh, which would be almost 40 years ago. I remember the things and values that they taught me. And I did feel like I was reborn in the academy. So uh, went through that and then went to some really great stations, learned a lot of what I'll call, uh, um, maybe it's the old school firefighting because a lot of those guys were not politically correct and they did what they thought were right. It was an interesting group of people. They were, a lot of them were veterans uh, that, <laughs> that uh, couldn't really find other jobs. <laughs> Common <laughs> criminals that found a good job. There was a lot of uh, construction workers and there was a lot of uh, trades type people, just nuts and bolts folks doing the work. And, uh, and as we all know, when you're in the trades um, or you're doing nuts and bolts work, there's not a lot of time to screw around and there's a lot of pressure to get the job done and oh, do yeah. it correctly and do it right and very goal-oriented. So I, I thought those guys, they really help uh, mold me and shape me. The firefighters were, were uh, I, I'll, I'll, again, I'll, tell, I'll date myself and tell a funny story. The, I'm at Station 6. Uh, Ralph O'Kelly was my captain. And Ralph was a painter. Mexican guy? <laughs> yeah, Mexican guy O'Kelly. Yeah, yeah he, he was. I, yeah, he was smoked Irish. <laughs> so, <laughs> so he... Uh, 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 we go, we'd go to fires with station one all the time. And I remember to this day going into fires with, uh, Tim Smith and wondering why he wasn't wearing an SCBA face piece. And none of those guys, SCBAs were new. And our classes were one of the first classes that actually went through and they said, you will wear an SCBA when you go in fires and you operate around smoke. And, uh, so it was a new, it was kind of a new thing. A lot of those guys never still never wore masks. Wow. And uh, so it definitely affected the amount of time you're in the fire and your ability to operate. So it was kind of a self-correcting problem. <laughs> Nobody got burned because they couldn't take the heat. The, right. the, they didn't have a mask on, right? So I uh, went through that, learned a lot from all those folks. Uh, um, ended up going to paramedic school, became paramedic early in my career. Paramagician. Oh, yeah, yeah, did that. Nationally registered for about uh, t- 25 years. I was uh, an operator in the field for, for, uh, as a paramedic for a long, long, long time. So again, tremendous changes in the way we did things. We did, we did uh, pericardial centesis, which is basically sticking a needle in somebody's heart. <laughs> we, we did... Uh, Who doesn't want to know how to do that? Oh, uh, they, we did... We had a, Pulp Fiction. Oh my gosh. We had some of the... Because again, they, it was, paramedics were new. They were trying to figure out how do we turn these firefighters... Tradesmen, if you will. GED members. <laughs> uh, 
uh, into brain surgeons that they can perform <laughs> brain surgery in the field. And it sounds uh, like a great idea. Oh my gosh! Uh, and so one of our instructors, Mike Vance, God rest his soul, was uh, an amazing guy, toxicologist. Uh, emergency room physician, extremely smart guy. And uh, uh, he did it. I still remember again to this day, he did thing called round table and you'd sit in the back of uh, an ambulance of rescue one training medic ambulance thing. And uh, he would do round table with you all night long. Fair Labor Standards Act, none of that stuff mattered. It yeah, was like, you're going to keep working. Yeah, you're going to be here for 17 hours. So get ready. Uh, and he would ask us questions about um, how how disease processes work and how our drugs are and every, everything you could imagine wow. constantly. And I will tell you, so some of my crew development and the things I still hold true today are rooted in that recruit training and that paramedic training and that would go into those calls with Tim Smith and Ralph O'Kelly because those guys believed in training. And I'll tell you, so, and they didn't care what time of day it was or when it was or whatever, what the conditions were. It was time that it was, it was formal training. It was informal training, way more informal training than formal training. Uh, Sometimes that's the best kind. It is (laughs) uh, because that's the stuff you remember, right? That's the stuff because your subconscious mind is open and free and allows you to absorb all that, uh, all that, uh, whatever they're spewing at you, you absorb it all and take it in, right? And uh, so uh, the paramedic training experience, one of the best things I ever did in my life, I have to tell you. So uh, and the ability to execute that in the field and, and help other people was was uh, very rewarding. Uh, so I stayed in the field for quite a while, drove the drove the fire truck as an engineer. I thought it was important to understand an engineer's job and understand how to do uh uh, fluid hydraulics, which thank God I was an engineer at one point because I understood it a little bit better. But sure, I let your family down. You had to, you, you had to somehow, some way, get that engineer title, right? Right. <laughs> I can right. Get it somehow. And it's not on a diploma, but it was on your shirt. <laughs> yeah, right. Well, I, I still, I told, I still tell, told my family I'm an engineer. I drive the fire truck, right? You're a conductor. Yeah, train, train engineer. Nope, fire yeah. engineer. Whatever. <laughs> Doesn't count. Uh, so that was, uh, that was, uh, again, a really rewarding, uh, wor- worked for Jack Earp at, uh, at a fire station 24 and Jack really soft spoken guy, but learned a tremendous amount about, uh, the behavior and, uh, spiritual development of people and firefighters from Jack. Maybe wasn't the guy that went out there and kicked ass at a fire, but certainly was a guy that had a very human quality and, and, and was engaged in your spiritual and, and mental health and behavior. Uh, that so, was probably a first back then, right? Well, he, he was unique. Yeah, I was say, uh, he yeah, was unique time? to that. Yeah, they probably, probably didn't care about that. Probably no, they, it was how big, how fast, and how strong. I, I still tell people to this day they hired us for our brawn, not our brains. Yeah. <laughs> Was that the similar development that you got from Rudy Hernandez? <laughs> Rudy Hernandez was uh, part of the crew there uh, with Rick Salyer. So it was uh, quite a diverse group of individuals. Uh, Rick bag of nuts. Yeah. Uh, uh, Rick Salyer's was a uh, force recon Marine. Oh, yeah. Uh, and Hard charger, especially yeah, back then. And, in the 60s. Uh, and Rudy Hernandez was a carpenter uh, from Yuma. 
but a very qualified, great uh, firefighter, knew everything, couldn't hurt that guy. You could not d- damage that guy in any way, mental, mentally, physically. What station was that? So I get a picture of where all this is happening. 24. 24. So on the west side of Phoenix, uh, 30, no, 50. It was one of the far west outposts, right? It was that in 25. Was 40 around yet, Scott? No, they just 40 was not there. And so to give you a context, this was at the time when they were changing from two-person paramedic units that did not transport people. So it was the old Squad 51 thing. And there was about four or five of those around the city. There was one east, north, south, east, west, and central. And they decided to change those into paramedic engine companies. Oh. So uh, those Very went angry. away, and they moved all those folks over onto the engines. And so I was... It'll in never engine. work. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and they moved... So there was still the concept of uh, those paramedics go do their thing, and yeah. then those that engine company is for firefighting. And as soon as those paramedics show up, then that fire truck goes away. And uh, then it was this huge cultural shift to know now this paramedic is on that firefighting truck. And of course the joke was, well, the firefighters are on the truck, so uh, they must do the firefighting. The paramedics, they don't, they don't do anything, right? They stand outside. And so it was an interesting shift in, and me as a paramedic engineer, I believe there was only less than five on the fire department. I was going to say, you're kind of a unicorn, especially very, back then. Very much so. And so I always said I did the job that I got to do something fun on every call. I either drove the truck or I, or I uh, stuck needles in people, which, <laughs> and, you know, acupuncturists, if you will, for, by trade. Uh, so we, uh, it, was, uh, it was busy, and that was a, a, um, there was no other paramedic companies in the West Valley. Wow. So, so we would run. I, I still, again, to this day, the... the the training I received on the job training, if you will, uh, Rick Sellers and I would shift trade back and forth doing skills or paperwork. And I would tell people I would intubate probably at least 10 people a month and we would start maybe six to eight IVs a shift. So two medics for all of the West Side of Phoenix. Yes. <laughs> yeah, we ran a lot of calls. So we were a busy yeah. company there. We, we ended up, and again, I... Because uh, of that engineering disease that I have, I calculated my Code 3 driving miles. How much did I actually <laughs> drive a year? Because I wanted to, I needed some, di- uh, some data, right? I needed some empirical data to True. say, hey, I'm, I drive a lot of Code 3 miles. And uh, I think I calculated out to about 3,000 Code 3 miles a year Jesus. Uh, to drive. So in a high, what I consider one of the highest risk things we do in the fire service, driving the fire truck to a call or back from a call, uh, what percentage of my time did I do that? And it was a lot. Maybe. So it was important for me, again, personally, to train to that standard. If that's what it, that's the most that's the highest hazard thing I'm going to do, what do I need to do? Well, I really know how to drive. I need to know how to drive that fire truck code three. Anticipate other drivers and figure out what to do and be good at my the skills I needed to do to protect myself and the crew and the community. That brain was always going, huh? Oh, dude, it's hard. To, it's <laughs> it's painful. 
<laughs> You'll try to turn that thing off some days. <laughs> yeah. Well, the good thing at Station 24, I, I still remember this day, uh, Dennis Compton was an assistant chief at the time and he used to come around the fire station and they would do station inspections. And the station inspection was to see if it was clean. Okay. And they would look at everything. And at the time, they had a lot of issues with mattresses, if you can imagine. The mattresses uh, were because guys were laying on them without a cover on them and they got them dirty and then they'd have to change them. And so Dennis Compton's walking around the fire station and he looks and he, he sees uh, my bed and Rick Salyer's bed and he goes, well, look, see how clean those mattresses are? He goes, that's the way they should be for everybody. And I said, yeah, that's because we never fucking get in them. <laughs> it's easy to keep it clean then. Yeah. Yeah. Super simple. I said, I'm guaranteed two hours of sleep from four in the morning till six and then somebody will wake up dead and we got to go save them. <laughs> So I uh, did that for a long time. Great experience. And then took the captain's test. How and, long paramedic engineer? Uh, that was probably from about 83 to about 86, 85. Or, well, it would have been about 86 or 87 because then I took the captain's test and, and uh, uh, was successful in that. Again, I, I have to laugh because... What's the number? Come on. So I... <laughs> Yeah, I, I ended up coming out, um, I think I was in the top 10, but it was an interesting thing because, again, uh, my uh, ego, if you will, got in the way, and I thought, how hard could this be, right? I've taken all these tests in college. How hard could it be to take a, uh, a test for the captain? So I studied moderately, and then I didn't study the EMT at all because I'm brain paramedic, right? I was trained by Mike Vance. I, I'm the brain surgeon of the field, right? I'm a street <laughs> brain surgeon. Uh, and I missed every EMT question on the test. There was five of them and I got all five of them wrong. Uh, and I, I did not do very well on the written test. Um, uh, it was either, I blame it on the test writers because how could I be wrong? Couldn't be right? your fault, right? It can't be me. Oh, yeah. uh, this test is fucked up, not me. <laughs> So, uh, again, through uh, my career, I think we all have the guardian angels and the mentors that assist us, right, throughout. Yeah. And they're the ones that see more in us than anybody else. And one of those people for me was Dennis Compton. And Dennis Compton was one of the guys who hired me on the job back in 1980. And he evidently saw more in me than others. So we go into the, the oral portion of the test, which is the tactical evaluation. So the... Uh, the, the, we fill everything out on the, on the forms and we turn everything in and have our fire grand diagrams and all of the deployment of all our companies and everything. Dennis Compton looks at me and he says, so what fire were you fighting here? And immediately I realized, uh Oh, wrong one. <laughs> I, I must not have done something correctly here. And I said, well, I was fighting a fire for on the second floor of this apartment complex, blah, 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 blah. And he goes, Hmm, interesting. He goes, well, I'll tell you, you did the correct thing for that fire, but let me ask you a question what would you do if the fire was on the first floor? <laughs> and I said, well, do you have a tactical worksheet? And he said, certainly. He hands me a blank tactical worksheet. And so I took him and he throws a pencil at me and he says, redo the problem right now. you got three minutes. So I crank out the problems, show him everything, draw it all out, give it to him. And he said, that's the correct problem there for a fire <laughs> on the first floor. So I ended up getting the highest score on a tactical exam because I'm sure nobody else had to do well, one. Well, you did two of them. <laughs> yeah. You have extra credit for that. Yeah, yeah. three <laughs> minutes. So uh, Dennis. Were you on B-shift? <laughs> I was. <laughs> All right. Never knew uh, that, but that makes total sense now. <laughs> uh, so uh, I, did, uh, I did well on that, and then I got to go out, and uh, they put me at uh, a new concept in the Phoenix Fire Department. 
adaptive response units. Yeah. Uh, never existed before. There was two of them in the city, and uh, nobody knew exactly what they were supposed to do. And uh, so I will, uh, they said, Scott, uh, this was L.B. Bouchon Sr. at the time, was the shift commander and assigned everybody to where they're going to go to work. And he says, yeah, I need you to go work at this adaptive response. I said, what's that? He goes, I don't know, but you'll find out when you get there, make it work. I said, okay. And uh, so for us, the adaptive response was a truck that traveled to wherever the highest use was or a hole in the system in our automatic uh, aid system, uh, the consortium, wherever that was in the entire consortium of multiple cities. If there was a hole in the response in the polygon, we couldn't get there in three to five minutes. We needed a company. We would send that adaptive response company there. Do they have like 50 of those or something? One, two. <laughs> oh, there's only two holes to plug. That's it. Oh, no, yeah, no, the no. holes were everywhere. But <laughs> we uh, made huge progress. There's five now. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, so I, I ended up doing that, and again, I had an interesting group of individuals on the the fire truck. Uh, the crew was interesting, um, and they were all. I, I realized after I'd been on the Phoenix Fire Department for a while, and especially. Uh, as a captain and involved in the recruit training process that we hired extreme people. And uh, by, by design, we hired extreme people. And those extreme people, we asked them to do extreme things, and it was natural for them. Uh, they're, running into, they're running to danger, and they're going into burning buildings. So we don't want to hire somebody that isn't comfortable with that. So what comes along with hiring an extreme person? Extreme everything. Uh, that, yeah, you can't. You, and you can't do extreme stuff all the time. That was the yes, issue. And so. In, <laughs> you absolutely can. In, in, my, in my quest of uh, developing crews, I realized that these, that you have to ex- understand that they're going to do extreme things all the time. <laughs> And you can't turn it on or off. Extreme basketball. Uh, all, extreme basketball was a way of life, right? <laughs> Ask the guys that went to the hospital with, with crushed faces <laughs> from elbows and knees that were hitting them. when I was just trying to get the rebound, man. You got in the way. <laughs> uh, so we hired these extreme people, and they did extreme things, and they were always at the top of the game, right? So I realized in crew development and, and mentoring that I, you have to look at those extreme things and capitalize on them, right? And then you have to take those ex- undesirable extreme things they did and try and subdue those or minimize them. And uh, one thing was, was for sure, everybody wanted to participate, right? Because if they didn't, they weren't part of the group. So everybody wanted to participate. Everybody wanted to do something. So I, I always capitalize on that. We, we'll talk about that in a little bit about how, how we made sure everybody was part of the team and, and did the work. So those extreme folks, uh, we, I kept them busy. Sometimes we went on calls, sometimes we didn't. So, uh, and I, uh, one of my other philosophical basis of firefighter training and development was it's dog training. So food, so I driven I again, because I'm a, I'm a analyzer, right? It's the engineering gene. I can't stop it. I can't turn it off. I have to, I have to use it. So I realized, so I was a FEMA dog handler. So we took the, the air search, um, live scent dogs and we would go to the most extreme environments with the most extreme dog we could find the crazy one that would eat your couch if it didn't give it something to do. <laughs> and we would train that tool 
to do extreme things in extreme environments and be happy doing it. The dog was playing. It wasn't extreme to them. It was playing. Does that sound a little bit like firefighters? (laughs) (laughs) Marginally. Yeah. So it's really close to the same thing. So I realized that, uh, that those dogs like to eat and they like food rewards. They like toy rewards and they like to play. And... Uh, they would collapse and fall asleep after doing extreme things. Just about anywhere. <laughs> right. I've been and fucking doing this wrong for this whole time. I'm <laughs> telling you, it's dog training, right? Uh, the you other thing. Talk 10 years ago. <laughs> the other thing that the dog liked is dog liked consistency. The dog liked the same thing all the time and liked a routine and felt comfortable. As soon as you varied from the routine, unhappy. What's going on? Why are we doing this? I'm not, I'm not comfortable here. So, uh, so I started patterning my development of firefighters off the same way I trained a dog. <laughs> and I really hate to say that out loud because firefighters think they're a higher level than a dog. Very intellectual. <laughs> yeah, they're, uh, there's no, you're comparing me to a dog. Yeah, sorry, dude, but that's the way it is. Dude, the males in general. <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah. Right. it's male species in general, not just firemen. <laughs> so uh, so uh, the dog training was an important thing for me. And I, I again, I went into the FEMA system and learned a lot from the FEMA system. Uh, again, going to extreme places, doing extreme things. Uh, had uh, unbelievable personally develop, developing experiences going to Hurricane Katrina and Superstorm Sandy and wildland fires. I would go to, I was part of wildland uh, command team and went to wildland fires. Learned, I think it was that diversity in different systems and development of different types of individuals really helped me look at what was the best thing for us to do to train firefighters within the city of Phoenix and the, and the American Fire Service. How'd you stop them from humping couches and stuff? Uh, I didn't. Yeah, let him go. That yeah. well, and yeah. we started with couches. Get it out. And we had the couches. Uh, we got rid of those and went to Stratos. So then they humped the Stratos, <laughs> and that was better because they could get their arms around them. <laughs> and all that, all that time was when, as a captain paramagician. Yes. Okay. Yeah. So I, I and I, I was extremely, extremely happy. Uh, personally and spiritually and emotionally uh, being a paramedic captain in the Phoenix Fire Department, having the ability and, and doing the FEMA work and the wildland fire work and doing all those things uh, was very comfortable for me. And I was, I was, um, I felt I could impact a lot of people in those positions because I had the ability to have a crew there and I could develop that crew and I could go out in the FEMA world and do that and influence uh, a lot of things. Uh, and I did that for quite a while. So I was in the field as a captain for probably about 23 years. Wow. Or I was in the field for 23 years and a captain for probably 17 of that. That's or a so. long time to be a captain. And I was, I was really happy. So I feel like I understand the role and jobs of a captain <laughs> and how to manage a crew. And uh, I, was, I had the ability in that time to uh, work at a... Uh, after I drove the truck in Maryville, I went to um, 27th Avenue in Buckeye, which is what I would call the inner city lower edge. 
Mm-hmm. Yep. So it's yep. the outer edge of the inner city. And, Buckeye uh, Knife and Gun Club. It was the Buckeye Knife and Gun Club. <laughs> we, we, it, the difference of uh, Fire Station 24 in Maryville was we went on a lot of uh, medical emergencies. Not a lot of fires, but we Because we it was on. a very middle-class neighborhood at the time. Middle-class neighborhood. It was a nice neighborhood. It was a family, uh, family-centric development, all that at the time. Yeah, and lots of lots of retired folks. So we had a lot of lot of codes. Worked I, I worked more codes than I can ever tell you there. And except on Friday night, we had a lot of uh, Friday and Saturday night. We had uh, a lot of overdoses um, because people were a lot of scorned lovers that were eating a lot of uh, trying to commit suicide from huh. being scorned as lovers. So predominantly white, Caucasian. Back then, uh, blend, blend, yeah, yeah. yeah. So just, a just middle class middle blend. Class I think okay. is a good yeah. way to say it. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It was it was like a suburban uh, neighborhood. It was just normal gotcha. stuff, and it was a huge response area. So you got to remember this response area now went from the center of the city to the furthest west edge to the 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 lower part of the north part of the city and all the way to the south. Border of the city. Yeah, so station, station 10 sitting at I-17 in Thomas. Okay. These guys are at 43rd Avenue in Thomas. So they have everything midway to Station 10 to the east, and then everything uh, through the agriculture parts to the west. They're, they're the far west outpost, right? Them in 25. Yeah. You feel free to lie and embellish as much as, 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 as you'd like to, but what, what was your call volume? Back then. Oh, yeah. We went on, uh, I believe it was, I think we went on about thirty-eight to 4,000 calls a year. Which was, what was that? Was that so I, I think it's actually 18? a similar number now. There's just more yeah. companies now. Yeah, yeah, and they're doing, sure. they're doing that. I, uh, when I looked at it not too long ago, we're going to have, I think it was seven or eight companies over 4,000 this year and two over 5,000. Wow. That's back then. Yeah, yeah, and so it this was back then, yeah. With shitty equipment or not. Farther yeah. response yeah. time, yeah, response bigger area, area. yeah. yeah. That, was the, that was the key, was this, there was this response area was so big. So you got to remember, too, we're out of service. So at those days, we'd go pick the paramedics up at the hospital. So if we went, this it was not unusual for us to, we, we ran with Station 30. Which is north. Way north. Yeah. And we ran with uh, Engine 3. Which is the center Super of the central. city. Yeah, and then we would go Common all... Common criminals there, for sure. Yeah, we go with 39 and, and trucks all the way far south, down wow. to Levine. And so uh, we were out of service. So those those 3,800 to 4,000 calls were... We were out of service a lot, picking people up and going on calls, and there was nobody around. So we would have had a lot more right? if we hadn't had that. And at the time, I believe the NFP had identif- NFPA had identified that... Uh, the maximum effective calls for an engine company was three thousand. So anybody over still three, true today. Yeah, yeah. anybody over three thousand calls, you you start degrading your effectiveness. And uh, so so uh, we we did a lot to try and degrade or try to maintain and not let that degradation of our effectiveness affect the way. Mine degrades about a thousand. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh I, I'll tell you. I, I I will say, and I I'm 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 hate to say the good old days, but we were we every the problem was every call we went on was a call that needed us. Yeah, I I believe that because I think back then uh, I'm just gonna say because I don't give a shit, but people were tougher. 
right? They didn't. They weren't so dependent on everybody else. They weren't so helpless to do stuff. And when they were calling you guys, they probably actually absolutely needed it. Yeah, like healthcare it and insurance issue. weren't as big of an issue, and access to that kind of stuff wasn't as big of an issue then. So you had you know these middle class families who had. Uh, it was probably a less safe time too. So there's a lot more real emergencies happening right. in and around. Probably in in back then, people were were generally like society. Americans were generally healthier than they are now. Like the rates of heart disease and diabetes and all that stuff wasn't wasn't as prevalent. So you guys probably saw less of that common um, common medical ailments versus the true emergencies. Yeah, it, it was a. I, I truly believe it was a different uh, type of response then. Yeah, than it is today. I believe that. And uh, I, I, I'll go, I'm going to go back a little bit. So part of that time, I, as a paramedic engineer, I also spent at Fire Station 21, where I went later as a captain, 27th Avenue in Buckeye. And so that was, again, a really, really interesting uh, developmental experience for me. Um, so when I went there, they had just changed all those paramedic companies. They were making paramedic engine companies. And they needed a paramedic engineer. So they said, and I, it was only two of them in the city that could go anywhere. And I was one of them. Who's the other one? Uh, I believe it was Jeff Shucker. If that, that's a name out of yeah. the way well, out of the I past. Jeff and Shucker. Jeff Shucker might have been the only other one. And uh, so I went to Fire Station 21. The captain was a six-year firefighter who had just been promoted. In the back in those days, they called them six-year wonders. So it was like three or four guys that were six years on the job and became captains. Wow. And and, uh, and then uh, the fire and he and I were there, and we had to recruit a firefighter. So we recruited a firefighter that was only had about two and a half years on the job. That's man, that's like now, kind of right. Yeah. yeah so and then we had a now. we had a recruit. There was no ambulance there or anything else. So then we had a recruit firefighter. So that was Josh Voynick was the captain. Ken Flickinger was a firefighter, and I was the uh, engineer. Plus a booter, any Plus number a bo- of booters. Yeah, so and every Flickinger had how many years? Two and a half. Man, was he was he that savage back then at two and a half years too? No, I de- <laughs> I developed all that in. You're to blame for that, <laughs> just so you know. Yeah. And, uh, You're the one that gave him that big cake. Oh yeah, well, uh, Ken, Ken Flickinger and I have a very um, unique relationship, to say the least. You obviously didn't teach him how to squat with those legs. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so we, we, uh, and Josh Voynick and, and, uh, I'll describe Josh Voynick. So Josh Voynick was a guy that always tried to do the right thing. Lots of energy, uh, was, was a smart guy and trying and, uh, we all were really trying to do the right thing. So now you got to think about this. So what did we have? All of us combined on the truck had about 13 years experience. Okay. Tremendously different from when I was at fire station 21 as a captain where I alone had 20 years experience. Okay. So again, a real different time. So we all were at that fire station. And again, one of the, one of the basis of, of development for me was Josh Voynich says, does anybody know what we're supposed to be doing? Because <laughs> I'm a, I just made captain, and you just made Scott just made engineer, and Ken Flickinger just got out of the academy a year ago. I really don't think we know what we're doing, uh, so we're gonna train. So every stinking day we would train every shift, and we would train on something different. Like we'd go pull a hose lay out of the out of the training manual and say, what are we supposed to do? Let's try this one, two lines forward, and then we're going to extend an a inch and a half um, hand line. Okay, and we'd go and we'd throw every piece of canvas on that fire truck on the, on the asphalt, every shift. 
and and uh, Josh said, you know what you're supposed to be pumping? I said, well, uh, this is what it says in the book, and I'm going to try this and make it work. And then if Ken Flickinger's feet came off the ground, that was too much. It's <laughs> <laughs> so about 80 PSI. <laughs> right. Because <laughs> he's about probably 130 pounds of weight right, back then, right? Right, right. <laughs> and uh, so we did a lot of training, and we we learned together a lot. So uh, had no choice, right? We did have it's no, survive. It's survival, right? We had absolutely no choice because none of us. There was nobody there that could say, "Hey, let me take you aside and show you what you're supposed to do." Right? Because there's nobody there. It's just us. Yeah, and it's a it's a single engine company firehouse. Well, the cool house. thing about that too is, and I'm not joking <laughs> for once, is it sounds like zero ego, right? There was no time for that. Yeah, they're like we all we all know nothing, so let's all figure this yep. out together. Yep, wow. you are exactly right. So there, uh, and that was, and I personally, again, another another tenant of of uh, develop crew development and successful firefighting is their egos can't be involved, right? It's got to be it's got to be real stuff, and it's got to be what can you do, what can't you do, and I'm not afraid to say it. And we none of us were afraid to say. We don't know what the hell we're doing. Yeah. Right. And then as we progressed and developed, uh, we, uh, we all, then we could all say, we know what we're doing. Right. Cause but, we did it. But how long did that take? So that took a long time. I have to tell you, you're yeah, right. So, sure. so you're talking, you're talking a year. Right. Of and having every shift training your ass off, doing stuff on top of running calls on top of working out and cooking and all that other stuff that we do. Because we made mistakes. Yeah. So when you make a mistake, then were you're, any of you over thirty? No, that's, that's pretty badass, yeah, Dave. That, yeah, that is. That, that yeah. Is so more, all more of us. Well, let me take that back. Uh, sometimes the uh, booters were. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> sometimes the Perfect. least experienced like, guy the on the fire fuck? truck was the oldest. Yeah. <laughs> wow, that that's an inter- interesting dynamic in itself, like that. And I, I will tell you, so that's actually not unusual in the fire in the Phoenix Fire Department at the time. So all three shifts had, were very similar in that manner. All of them had a, a six-year wonder as the captain, and then had uh, some some. There was no at the time. I don't believe there was any other paramedic engineers there. They were they were moved up engineers and firefighters that were right. paramedics, Driving and so and uh, so it was it was a really interesting time. Uh, but we learned a lot, and and uh, I, I will tell you. So the ability to develop people in other positions. So uh, and and later in the fire service, we could say, hey, we're going to move somebody up to captain and mentor you in that position, or move you up to engineer and mentor you. We we didn't have that luxury because that firefighter didn't know their job as a firefighter. <laughs> so what's the point in moving them up to drive? Right. So Ken Flickinger is like, I'm not driving because I don't know what I'm I'm doing as a firefighter. I'm still learning. Yeah, because I would say, I don't know what it is today, but like how it was back then, but today, like those those recruits leave in the academy, they know the the absolute minimum they need to to fight a fire. It's all basic, it's all very structured, it's all very safe and comforting. So there's a lot of nuanced stuff that you're not gonna figure out until you get out to the field. So like guys like even though Ken Flick's a smart guy, whatever uh, physically fit guy, there's a lot of stuff he's gonna have to learn just being in the field actually doing it for real how and when to apply the things that you actually learn in the academy yeah and and learning uh uh, the experience of reactions and the choices 
when is the right time to do the this particular thing and when is the wrong time to do a particular thing that's that's a huge experiential thing in the in the field i think pattern recognition and yep. and like and like you guys were giving yourselves that pattern recognition by training that much and i i liked i like that you said um, that it took a year and like, you know, hitting it hard, but like, you know, people always think like, hey, I'm going to learn this shit in two weeks, three weeks, four weeks, no. two months. Yeah. So that's like, that's something if you're listening, this is a man that's done a lot. Listen to what he's saying about how it comes. It comes slow. It does come slow. And, and so we did, uh, and again, I, I, I did this in all the time I was developing crews is we would do like that didactic work, if you will, or the chalk talk or the classroom and things like that. And like you said, Brandon, so those, those recruits coming out of the academy, they may have said, I did that hose lay, when this was the common thing, I did that hose lay one time. <laughs> right? That's good. And I did it in a training environment. It wasn't even I'm in- really flat. A nice concrete yeah. surface with no obstacles, with no pressure, with no bystanders, with nothing. So, and I think, and Chris, so you bring up a really important point. So one of the things I learned at that, and I will call it uh, emotionally uh, painful time, was uh, because we, we suffered a lot of defeat. Right. And so we learn more from our defeat and our mistakes than we did from when we did it right. Hugely critical. We always do. And uh, so we never did it on flat surface. We never did it on asphalt. We never did it on a concrete grinder. We did it in the street where we were going to do it. So we, <laughs> it was, and so the joke, and if Ken Flickinger ever hears this, he will laugh. And uh, any of the folks that were booters at that station will laugh. So it was not unusual for us to be driving back from the hospital at 10 o'clock at night and for Josh Voynick to say, let's go lay some canvas. How'd that go over? Uh, well, I have to tell you, so that that's the whole thing. So now in crew development, in the training of the dog, if the dog never knows when it's going to go do its, its training and application, does it care? Because it's fun, yeah, right? So now what we were doing was we were saying, hey, we're going to train in true application because we're not going to do it in daylight. We're not going to do it when we're comfortable and rested. We're going to do it when we really do it in the middle of the night when we got to get up to go on a call and we're going to get really good at doing that. And that's going to become our norm. That's going to become what we're comfortable with. Comfortable being uncomfortable. You're right. Everything else is going to be simple. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Smart, smart, smart way to do it too. So, and I, I've, I've got to always tell a funny story, right? So my funny story, because there's always those one memorable one. So we come back from a call, let's go lay some canvas. So we lay a whole bunch of canvas out in a dirt lot in the middle of the night and Buckeye, on Buckeye Road, right? <laughs> the cops would always come driving by and shine their lights. Are you guys okay? Are you, is everything all right? Yeah, we're fine. Okay, you're crazy. Bye. <laughs> and they drive away. And so we lay a bunch of canvas out there in the road and uh, we're, we're switching around a little bit. We're going to have the recruit, fi- or the boot firefighter is going to be in the nozzle position. Nozzle position is responsibility, right? First thing you do when you get off the truck, put the hose clamp on the, tr- on the, on the line from the hydrant. So Ken Flickinger jumps off. He takes the hydrant. I take off, drive down the street, turn the corner, blah, blah, blah. The boot firefighter jumps off and forgets the hose clamp. Oh, boy. And, uh, so we go around and, uh, so we end up flooding the hose bed and, and causing the, and the evolution fails. I can't, I can't fix it. I can't get the clamp on the whole thing. So we learned a lot from that. thousand feet of four inch line 
Fully charged. Full water. Yeah, full water. Making a very distinct noise on the top of the engine. That is an an unmistakable noise. Yep. Never happened to me as an engineer, but I saw it happen to several guys. Like, (laughs) oh, yeah. That sucks. (laughs) So, uh, So Josh Voynick was one of those guys. He was kind of an old schooler, and he said, "Well, I think you. We really. I really want to make you remember this. (laughs) So what I'd like you to do is take that hose clamp. And I I have to say, I learned a little bit from Josh on this one because the more intimate you become with your equipment, the more more comfortable you are. And military model: go sleep with your rifle, right? If you got an M16 or an M4, go sleep with it, and then you will learn to love it. (laughs) So." so Josh says, I'm going to let, allow you to become more intimate with the hose clamp. <laughs> so why don't you take that hose clamp and go back to the fire station and then we'll meet you back there and we're going to pick all this hose up. And we're, and I'm like, holy shit, we got to pick up all. And at time it was three and a half inch hose, cotton jacketed or synthetic jacketed cotton hose. And we're, and it's all muddy and dirty. And I'm like, oh God, we're going to be here all night picking up hose. But that's the way it is, right? What else was I going to do? That's a fair deal too. Like, hey, like, like we're going to suffer you're, and you're going to suffer too in your own way. That's it. Yeah, so, okay. so that individual grabs the hose clamp and the hose clamp is, you know, it's pretty big. So he kind of has to cradle it and carry it like he's like against his chest and he's, and Josh says, and we better not beat you back to the fire station. Now you've got to remember fire station is about a mile away. Right. So he's like, he's going down Buckeye Road. We find out later he's running down Buckeye Road with the hose clamp on his head running down <laughs> and the cops stop him and they think he stole the hose clamp from the fire station, right? And he's explaining to the cop that, no, I'm in trouble. I got to keep no, going. No, I just really <laughs> fucked up. Yeah. And I got to get back. Yeah. His only, Can you give me a ride? <laughs> his only saving grace was is he is the purest white, red, white dude I have ever seen in my life. Hope and the cop Taylor. is like, there is no fucking way you, you live around here. Yeah. <laughs> So the cop actually gave him an escort back because he said, the last thing I want to do is see you get your ass kicked here on Buckeye Road and somebody really steal that, whatever you're carrying. (laughs) Awesome. uh, So we pick all the hose up and and go back to the station. But again, we learned a lot about that. And we have some funny stories to tell later, right? Uh, 30 years later, we can tell a funny story. But those things really, we learned a lot uh, by doing it in application in undesirable conditions. Again, uh, one of my speeches all the time I was a recruit training officer to the new firefighters was, you have now entered a job of inconvenience. If you think that this is going to be convenient for you and you're going to be comfortable at any time, uh, you are in the wrong profession because that you will get a call when you're trying to eat dinner when you're trying to take a shower, when you're tired, when you feel sick, uh, and and you have to respond. It's we Absolutely. respond unconditionally, right? Yep. And so you have to go on the call. So if you're here for convenience, you got in the wrong profession. So we we learned a lot in application there. I used those techniques later uh, in crew development. Um, took the captain's test. Went to went to the adapt move for jump forward adaptive response. Same things. Uh, idle hands are the devil's tools. So, uh, keep everybody busy and, uh, they'll be too tired. What do I do with the dog when the dog uh, is driving me crazy and wants to play? I play with the dog until it's ready to pass out and then he's good. He's golden. He's ready to go to bed. Right. But the dog will always wake up to go and play. (laughs) Firefighters will always wake up to go on a fire. Yep. Okay. So, uh, I'd use my dog training, uh, positive reinforcement, made sure they were fed, um, and, uh, and they were getting all the things they need emotionally, spiritually, physically, uh, and people were successful. How did you do that? 
they, the emotional, spiritual part of it, because I think that's a little bit harder than the fun side. I agree, and so and, and I can definitely speak to that from the de- from the from the develop e side. Okay. So go ahead. So uh, I have to tell you, um, and uh, to my detriment, I care. Well, no, that's actually a good thing. Yeah, yeah I actually, <laughs> I've heard, I, I actually care, and uh, I cared about uh, that those that my crew went home safe after every shift. I cared uh, that they were uh, physically well. I cared that they were mentally well, and again, spiritually well. And people a lot of times don't understand the spiritual side of things. And I have to tell you, so spiritually, to me, isn't I go to church every Sunday, right? Uh, spiritually is a belief system, right? So how do I believe? What it, uh, uh, I, I want to do the right thing. How do I believe that I can do the right thing? Because it's not something tangible. That and you, it's value-based, right, Scott? It's t- tremendously value-based. At, at some point, uh, I can go out and I feel like I did the right thing and it, it was right ethically and spiritually right, accepted community standard. I can walk away, feel good about it, Right. Not a behavioral, I'm happy, right. but a sad, more of a self, and this is all, you know, uh, the Zen, real deep stuff, but I think it's the thing we don't do very well, like you said, Brandon. We don't spiritually and emotionally develop and support firefighters the way we should. Yep. And, and so for me, I cared. I respected all the people that, that worked for me. Uh, was every single one of them the fastest? course not nope was every one of them the strongest nope was every one of them the smartest definitely not (laughs) but firemen (laughs) exactly uh and and firemen i don't if you gave them an iq test uh they would probably they may or may not pass but they're going to win at jeopardy every time Right, uh, right. because yeah, right. Uh, if you want something, it's fig- application of knowledge. Oh my gosh! If you want <laughs> yeah. something figured out, give it to a firefighter and tell them they can't figure it out, yeah. and they'll figure it out. Yep. Right? Dennis Packenbush made pack straps. I rest my case. <laughs> 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 so, um, how do we do that? So we care, and we're going to support them, and we're going to we're going to listen to what they have to say, and we're going to accept that they can fail. And we're not going to chastise them. We're not going to eviscerate them when they do something wrong. We're going to say, why did you do something wrong? And then how do we stop that from ever happening again? And I'll go back to when Josh Voynich had us out there throwing canvas in the asphalt or on the dirt every night on every shift in the middle of the night. If we, want, if we did well, we felt good, right? We went away spiritually, emotionally, and confident that we could do our job. When we didn't, Hey, you know what? Pick it all up and let's do it again. We didn't do good that time. But I care about that you're going to do it right. So I'm going to invest. The other thing I felt is important is I'm going to invest in your success. Right. I care about you enough to invest in your su- success. And I'm not going to... Another one is, and this is a, sometimes can be a dirty word, is creativity. I'm not going to stifle your creativity. I'm going to uh, develop it, encourage it, and support it. You're not going to micromanage them. Right, yeah. right. So, so when, I, when I look at somebody and they say, I've got a crazy-ass idea and I want to do this, I wouldn't say, you're fucking crazy. We're not doing that. You're stupid. That's wrong. Stop it. That scares me. Yeah, that, that, that is not what we do. And, and two, I, uh, and if any of 
anybody who knows me knows all the way up to I'm an assistant chief. I told my subordinates, deputy chiefs and division chiefs, and, and sometimes captains, <laughs> I said, you need to devote 10 to 15% of your time to creativity and right. come up with crazy ass ideas and come up with stuff that'll work and, and see if we can make it, make things better because of that creativity. I agree. So what I'm hearing from you too is when you said you actually cared, but what it what it means to me and what I'm hearing from you is you're willing to put the needs of everybody else before your own. Like 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 how much of your needs got met in a twenty four hour shift most days? Well, uh, so selflessness, right? Mm-hmm. So, so how can I be selfless and, uh, and try and develop somebody else? And so I would tell you, I drew a percentage. I don't know, because I can't say 100%, but I feel like it was 100%. And what I, what I felt like was I, w- I didn't care if I had to stay up later to help somebody because they had a question or a problem or they didn't know something. Or if I was uncomfortable or sick and my crew needed assistance, I would help them with that. I felt like that was my job was to develop that. And so that the, your fulfillment potentially was in that, right? Yeah. That's so what that's, you felt was the success. Of well, that's what, that's what that, you're getting. That's what I, I'm, to say it's selfless is wrong because I got a tremendous amount out of it. Right. So this sitting here and talking about this stuff, I get something out of that. Right. You know what? It's 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 taking my time. It's it's I could be doing something else. Is something else more productive? Maybe, maybe not. But this is and this absolutely <laughs> not fucking crazy. You must be fucking yeah, out of your uh, mind. Yeah, I'll take that. I'll there could, you realize there's gonna be at least six or seven people listening yeah, to this? For sure. And and they'll probably at the end they'll go, God, he's a crazy old fucker, just like he was when he was on the job. So well, some grade schoolers, but hey, whatever. <laughs> So, uh, so that is the, that is the self-fulfilling prophecy, right? Is, is what, am I getting anything out of this? Yeah, I'm getting something of developing somebody else and they, they're, they're better and they're confident and they can do their job. So, so I would, uh, so a funny, a funny piece. Sometimes you don't necessarily do that really wanting to. Sometimes you have to afford. Not for everybody, right? Right. Right. Because you'll, uh, well, uh, uh, right. So. Um, if I go out and train and I get better, but it was really uncomfortable and I really didn't want to do it, did it help me? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Same thing. So that's the same thing. If do I want in some manner it helped you? Yeah. Do I want to? Chris Bishop has an issue. God rest his soul. And I, I, I need. And he's on the crew. And and I'm tired. And I want to go to bed. And I don't feel good. And I'm sick. And he wants to talk to me. Do I just say, Hey, sorry, dude. I don't feel very good. I'm going to bed. Goodbye. Right. No, I would stay up and listen to them and try and help them out and work through the issue or whatever. And then, then I would, I would, so it was uncomfortable, but fulfilling, right? So you got to take the good with the bad. It can't all be good. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Not all fucking rainbows and unicorns. Yeah. It's not all great, right? (laughs) So, uh, so that, that, uh, so I really feel like in that, in that crew development and, and what we're doing is, is uh, the piece we miss is behaviorally, how do we keep everybody upright and smiling? You can't, right? Not all the time. Not all the time, but you can do the best you can to do that. And then we can train to work through those tough patches and those hard things that, that we feel are uncomfortable and we just have to deal with it, right? So, so sometimes, uh, again, I'll go back to Josh Voynick and, and uh, myself as a paramedic engineer being uncomfortable. So we, tr- we trained in the rain. 
right? So if it's raining, Josh Voynich didn't care if it was raining. He goes, let's go out Lake Campus. He had to wait a long time for it to rain. <laughs> it was it was usually predictable. We went to the Farmer's Almanac and figured out what day that would be. <laughs> Which day it was going <laughs> to rain. <laughs> this harvest is going to, okay, we're good. Yeah. And, uh, and, then, and then we went out there and we learned something and we got better. And um, it wasn't always fun, right? But we got better. And so, so that's, that's, so that's an, another thing in the crew development is it, when you train folks in uh, their most uncomfortable environment, this is again, so this is a little, I, I laugh because I always, I'm always fascinated by um, SEAL training, right? Navy SEAL training. So they dump them in the water and they make them uncomfortable and they do all these things and then they ask them to do tasks. So what can so when they get in that real situation, that task isn't that difficult because they've already done it. Yep. And so in recruit training, that was one of my things. So we would run the skills course and we'd go through this whole thing. And then I would ask somebody to tie a knot. Okay. And so when they tie a knot, it takes a lot of manual dexterity and it takes you got to remember what to do and you have to do it the right way. And that is the most uncomfortable time when you're trying to you're breathing super hard and you're trying to tie a freaking knot. Right. And you're like, what does this have to do with anything? Well, it develops being able to focus and function in the most uncomfortable situation. So when we're in a fire and something goes south, what's more uncomfortable than that? Nothing. And so now it's we're training people for a mental process. I'm not training to tie the knot, right? And Josh Voynick wasn't training us to lay canvas. He was training us to operate in the uncomfortable environment. And be calm, the application calm, of that skill. And the application of skill, and right? the confidence to be able to actually pull that off. Yep. And that's basically what a lot of the military stuff is based off of. Too. Right. And so, I, I, and so as much as, uh, and we have a paramilitary organization, and as much as we don't like to believe it, uh, we have to train the same way. Yeah. Because losing what, some of that, I think, in these, in these last generations, I think that, that being super uncomfortable, and I don't, I'm not saying that it's, it's, it's specific to our department or anything like that, but I think that's how the world is turning for, you know, with, being uncomfortable isn't a good thing. You need your safe place. You need this, you need like, like, uh, I, I think you, you have to be able, and I think you'll, you, both of you guys will agree this, you have to be able to push through that shit when it's uncomfortable, get, get, get uh get get uncomfortable and you know and be willing to go there on a regular basis and not not actually shy from that stuff like oh it's okay that you can stop or quit or not do something like that which well is- it's uh, the pinnacle right is developing our safe space uh to be the hard shit yeah because that's uh that's when we're fun uh potentially are functioning at our at our, at our greatest capacity um and then that's Hell, that's what people call us to do. Yeah. That's what that's what happens. So when so if you, we're faced with difficult situations, difficult conditions, and we're really really having to to react, um, we should have trained to where we feel comfortable enough mm-hmm. to operate confidently. Like you said before, in this area and uh, <laughs> to a certain extent, that's got to be our safe space, and uh, and that's a different safe space than most people are I think there's kind of two sides of that, which 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 we've been talking about the crew side, but it has to start individually. Like, you have to be able to put yourself in those spots, and then now you have to be able to translate your individual uncomfortable ability into a team where everyone's level of discomfort isn't necessarily the same on a team. Like, your, your resiliency or your ability to overcome that shit may be a lot better than mine or, you know, stuff like that. And like, how do you get that 
how do you get that team on that same page? And so, so I used to call it, uh, I, and again, in recruit training and, and development, I would ask everybody, have you ever seen the bottom of your well? And they'd be like, what do you mean the bottom of my well? I go, how far down the well have you gone? Because if, if you've never touched the bottom of your well, then you don't, we, will, we will teach you where the bottom of your well is, how, how much you have in reserve and how much you have yeah. left. Because I don't want you to find it when you're in a fire and you're trying to save you or one of your uh, one of your crewmates or or a, or a citizen or somebody else. You don't want to f- try and find out where the bottom of your well is. Yep. And we call like where I come from and how I taught was you got to be able to go to your dark place and then go a little bit further. Same yep. same exact thing. Yep. So it was. So it's a it's an interesting thing. So we have the ability to. Uh, uh, develop people through training, if you will, and the, the simplest part of the skills of the training. I, I actually think that's the easiest thing we do is to develop those skills because we have a textbook or a, or some set of rules that we follow that say you're going to do this prescriptively through a list of of procedural process or process right. of procedures, right? And uh, and and we can train somebody to do that, right? So. I'm going to go to dog training. So dog training, it's I'm going to teach you to sit and down and stay and heal. And those are easy. But now the challenge to that is I'm going to train you to sit, stay and heal in the middle of a tornado. Right? Yep. So the the external uh, environment, the forces, the, the, the forces that will affect you, you're going to be impervious to those and you're going to be able to execute no matter what. Then we're going to say that we are going to, so another piece of this, and so I'll, I'll tell my, uh, my funny Station 21 story is, so Mark Tierman always laughed at me, uh, and he was on the rescue there, and he was a, a firefighter there for a long time. He laughed because I had a series of black belts in my locker, and I had black belts that went all the way from size 30 up to size 44 or 46, right? Engineer size to paramedic size. All of them, right? <laughs> yep. And so uh, he loved that. Uh, and so why do you think? So why did Mark Terman laugh? Because I had those belts. Because when somebody came to the fire station, part of our uniform was a belt. So. Where is the value? Here's another uh, one that we struggle with. Where's the value in following the rules to being able to execute our job? Right. So guys would say, "I can do my job. I don't. I. I don't need to wear." What a, the fuck does a belt have to yeah, do with taking the plug? Yeah. What does a belt have to How do? I'm gonna fucking choke you without a belt. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> what does that have to do? I'm the most badass firefighter in the world, and I don't wear a belt. And I said, if you're the most badass firefighter in the world, can you wear a belt and still be a badass firefighter? Or do you have to have the belt off? Yeah. <laughs> right. Is that the definition of bad motherfucker, no belt? <laughs> right. So, so, so there's something about in, in crew development, there's a piece of this about what are the boundaries that we need to be able to operate within? And is there rules that we need to be able to follow? And if we can't follow those rules, we're going to get out of bounds really, really quick. And so we have, and so again, where did all those rules come from? Why, why do those rules exist? So we have personnel rules, we have standard operating procedures, we have safety rules. So I used to ask guys, why do we have safety rules? What happened that made us have safety rules? Somebody got hurt? Yeah, whose name's tied to it? <laughs> right, yeah, yeah. I, I was a little more graphic. I said, somebody fucking died. Yeah. Or something really fucking bad happens. Yeah, so, that Mike Mullane uh, guy that talks about uh, normalization to deviance uh, as a pilot 
uh, says, yeah, all of our, all of our, uh, uh, basically the flight rules and the flight plans, they're all written in blood. Yes, absolutely. And the same things with our SOP. So why do we have SOPs? SOPs are the, the guidebook to the way we operate. So when we operate and somebody else, and again, I am constantly amazed. There's very few professions in the world where someone can walk into that unit. And I'm talking about a Rover or a, uh, somebody from the outside come into that unit of a fire crew and operate effectively, or at least to a, a standard level without ever even knowing anybody else's name. So anybody can walk into a fire station and take the plug because they know that job. They can walk in anywhere and be a, uh, a hoseman. Now, are they most effective and do a good, uh, the best job possible? Maybe, maybe not. But they can do it. it if, uh, the, and minimum company standard can be executed with four people that have never, ever talked to each other before. Yep. So the greatest example of that, the only other one that I know of that can happen is airline pilots. So... What was that dude's, what was his name? Uh, well, Sully. Sully, right? Yeah. So I went, to a, I went to a conference and Sully's talking. And I did not realize until he was talking, he never, he never, he didn't know his co-pilot. Mm -hmm. He had never seen him before. I never knew that either. Wow, he never, so they take off. They had talked for 30 minutes. The co-pilot has control of the plane when they take off, yes. I believe, if I remember wow. that story right. And he said, he said that they looked at each other. He declared the emergency. They executed a certain amount of things that they had to do, and they landed the plane safely. Yeah, and he took control. I'm going to take control of the plane. Right. Okay. So that's, that's kind of what we, so that's a tremendous thing that we have the ability to do that within the American Fire Service, right? That we can, with somebody else can walk into the unit and operate without ever even having it. So how do we get to that point? There's a standard set of processes and procedures and rules that we all follow. So what is the simplest thing that we can do that demonstrates that we understand how to operate within those rules? Put on a fucking belt. <laughs> right because the rule says you're gonna wear a fucking belt where's that rule i must have missed that one <laughs> dude so i'm like i'm like so, i do not have any belt loops on my pt shorts yeah so i that, that so again so uh, mark chairman would laugh because we would have members that would come in and wear a pt uniform to go out into the public and engage the public right so the, one of the simplest, and these are just my things, right? We yeah, all have our things, sure. right? We all have our things. And I have, I have a few of them, and I'll, I'll hit a couple more of them. <laughs> but one of them was the rules say you're not going to engage the community unless you're PT and with a PT uniform. The simplest thing to follow. So if you can't follow that rule, what happens when everything turns to shit in the fire ground and I need you to follow the rules? Are you going to say, no, I don't wear a belt, so I don't have to follow your rules? <laughs> right. No, I... I'm tracking where you're going because I ask people that all the time, whether it be here at the construction company or training recruits, stuff like that. It's like, if you can't do the absolute simplest task that I'm asking you to do and do it correctly and efficiently, how in the fuck can I trust you to do something else? Yeah. So, and, and when I'm not around you. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So, so, uh, fuck so that belt. Yeah. <laughs> so, 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 in Burn thing. so to, to, to come full circle. So then the, what was the most common answer to, Hey dude, you forgot your belt. Oh, I don't own one. I don't own a belt. Yeah. Mark Tierman, 
don't worry, party. I got you covered. You <laughs> come out with all the belts. What size do you wear? Yeah. <laughs> well, hey, you provided it. Right. All you and wear it. So anybody who knows Mark Tierman, you know he's the guy that never wears the belt. Yeah, he doesn't give a <laughs> shit about a belt. Yeah. He <laughs> would him up for life. Yeah, he was the first guy to give that other guy the belt. That's hilarious. Right? Because he, and in his way, and, 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 uh, God, and I really like Mark Tierman. He's a close friend. God bless him. He 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 was the guy that knew the value of the belt. Right. Right? It's and not the belt, it's what the belt stands for. That's right. It's not the belt. Yeah. And so uh so uh, that was always one of one of his uh his favorite ones was was how uh, wearing the belt. So another one of mine was one of the uh, I I laugh because one of the most primitive and primal things that we do as human beings is eat. Right. And one of the, because we need it for energy and power and it makes us feel good. And, and, it, and, and it's kind of a, a, a it's a essential of life. Yeah. Right? It's communal in the fire service. Yeah. So it's communal in the fire service. Right. So it's communal. Where else is it communal? In families. Mm-hmm. Right. Everywhere. So how do we develop the family unit? How do we develop the reliance uh, this goes back to that spiritual and behavioral piece of of how do we do things. That's one of them. Is we need to do communal family things, right? So we sleep together, right? Some more than others. Uh, you can take that definition <laughs> right. a little further. I like to think shower together. Yeah, uh, we shower together. Which again, my favorite story when when part of my adventure in the in the fire service was I was the emergency manager for the city of Phoenix and I worked at City Hall, and uh, they totally don't understand uh, the communal family unit of the American Fire Service. So part of my my uh, challenge and quest was to educate city leaders, city manager types on the fire service, why they operate the way they do, because it's totally foreign to them. So what I told uh, Ed Zerker one day, who was the assistant city manager at the time, was that uh, we sh- I s- I've seen my coworkers naked. And he was <laughs> aghast. He's like, stop. Stop talking right now. Guard your words in action. Yeah, just stop talking. And I said, do you realize at Fire Station 9, there's a gang shower with 10 heads in there, and we're you're, the city built that for firefighters to shower <laughs> you're together. You're providing me a yeah. gang shower. Yeah. Right. I said, and I wake up, and I look, and I see my coworkers when I wake up. I wake up with them, and I sleep with them. And he's like, I don't know. I don't think we can keep having this conversation because I'm not sure I understand it. Uh, so, so that communal piece <laughs> of I eat, I sleep, I shower, I work out, I'm happy, I'm sad. Uh, my best day and my worst day are shared with this family unit. We're a team. We are a team. We're and a team. So a the, true team, not not team. I see you from eight to five, and I go home. I might have lunch with you. Like we're with each other. All it's not like we're sharing this project yeah, at no, work. Yep, no, sure. we're we're working together. Yeah, absolutely. and I can't get away. So I'm no. I'm in a I'm in a ten thousand twenty thousand square foot fire station, or maybe less if you're at old station fourteen. It might be three thousand square foot or two thousand. Uh, and I can't leave. I can't get away from you. I can only get. 10 yards or 15 yards away from you and, and separate us by a door or two. I go to the shitter. Yeah, I, yeah. I, I can't get away. So, so how do we encourage that? So again, 
Mark Tierman, God bless him, one of his favorite things was when somebody would come to the fire station and say, I don't eat with you guys. I have a special diet. So I had one person come and said that they had a macrobiotic diet and they couldn't eat the food the rest of us ate. And I said, well, uh, then you get your macrobiotic food and you're going to sit at the table when we eat and eat your own food. I don't care, but you're going to sit at that table. I like it. And uh, But why was it about sitting at the table and eating the food? Nope. It had nothing to do with that. The other thing I did was, of course, at the fire station, guys, and I think it still happens, is guys love to watch TV, right, while they eat. So I said, we're going we're gonna to watch TV, but I'm going to turn the sound off. And they're like, well, then what's the point in watching TV? I said, because we're going to make the noise. Yeah. We're going to make the sound for the TV and we can have the TV on if you got to have it on. And that's gratifying to you to see the images, but we're going to make the conversation and we're going to talk. Uh, well, what are we going to talk about? I said, I don't know. Maybe and trust not- me, you've seen this uh, episode of Andy Griffith 78 times. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So you can actually, you yeah. can say what, you can speak their part. <laughs> yeah, it's, 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 uh, it's gratifying and it makes me feel good spiritually, emotionally, and physically to watch, have the images on the TV. I don't care what they are, right? Uh, it can be turtles fucking. I don't care, but <laughs> it's, it's going to be make me feel good to watch it. And then we'll make the turtle noises at the table. Perfect. I like it. <laughs> Uh, and so that that's a lost art of the fire service, right? When you go to a station and everybody said, we don't eat together. So Scott as a rover, Scott as a captain, Scott as a firefighter would always say, I'll cook. I'll do whatever it takes to bring the family together yep. in the most primitive communal thing we do. And we will, and we'll engage in conversation, yep. right? Somehow. And so that is so. De, so then that becomes uh, the the spiritual or emotional thing that makes us feel good is to be together in that unit. So where does that translate to? It makes us feel good and connected when we go to the fire ground. Yep. Right, because we're all in this together and we can laugh about it. And so no matter how much I and I did have people sit and eat their macrobiotic food, whatever it was, but they were sitting at the table, which is fine. And like like all this stuff you're talking about. Bonds are, you know, those bonds are built with that team or with that group through physical stuff, exercise, suffering, food, all those basic things you're, 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 you're talking about dog training, but it's like, really, it's like Maslow's hierarchy, right? Food, shelter, clothing, all that kind of stuff. Like you're meeting that stuff and it's very basic to meld that team together to actually make them stronger and, and make them a working unit. And you do it over and over and over and over. It's not, it's, it's not an inconsistent thing. It's a consistent thing like coming back to the dogs i'll say this so uh, and i'm just thinking right now in my career and my experience i can't think of a fire station or a fire company that where that was a priority that that type of behavior that communal stuff that training you know the all those shared values and they were fucked up on the fire ground every single time that was important uh, that was that is typically a company that you could trust. That was a company that you knew was going to do a good job. Uh, that didn't mean they were perfect or anything like that. They can make mistakes and yeah. they can grow and all that. But um, 
there's a commonality when that stuff matters. They typically function well on the fire ground and did the right shit for the customer because they want to take care of each other. Yep. And like I know for and me, the community, right? They, yeah, they, they because recognize what their job really is. And like that's what I always said. If if you can handle all that stuff internally with your crew, build that stuff. When you go to the call, it just the call runs itself, right? Like there's no there's no issues. Like guys give a shit. They like they're willing to do the right thing because they have all that dysfunction doesn't exist because you've taken that and you've normalized that family in, in that station. So you're gonna go out there and act as a family because you, you don't want to let the family down, bring shame to the family, act in act in such a way where where the family looks bad. So I so so it's an interesting. So it's before I lose the thought. So so uh, and again, I'll go to my dog training. So what happens when you walk the dog every day at five o'clock in the afternoon? They're ready to walk. So the dog is sitting at the door at five o'clock every day. So when you say, "Hey, we're not eating together," what do they do? They go sit at the table. Yeah. <laughs> right. Charles, at what time, Chris? <laughs> yeah. Twelve and yeah. six. Twelve right? and six. Yeah. The only, <laughs> there's there's no nevers and always on the fire ground, but. Uh, Chow is always at 12 and always at 6. And I got, and, and I have to say, so my crews got to the point where they would say, Are we, we're training today, right? We got to go train or we got to do something. We got to do something to get better. And if we didn't, that was out of the norm and they felt uncomfortable. Yeah. Pacing around. Yeah, they're pacing around. Well, what are we going to do? Well, are we going to have a chalk talk? Are we going to do something? And and so we had a wide variety of different things we did because some days we it was too hot or we uh, it or was, we were welding fence panels because I always thought it was important to train people to have another skill. Right. Uh, and For so sure. I always multifaceted. I would, yeah, and so I would always because I welded and did a lot of stuff at the station when in my downtime I'd do a project or something and then I would have the recruit and I would teach them a skill because I said if this fire thing doesn't work out for you, you're going to have another skill. Yeah. That's the way we roll. Still got time. <laughs> Still got time. Need something yeah. else. You can be a painter, a grinder. <laughs> Whatever. So, so we developed that, uh, and everybody wants to do those things. So how, what is, how does that translate then into how we deliver customer service, right? So we, our crew now is spiritually well. They feel good about what they do. They have a purpose, right? Our purpose is to execute our job in a professional manner. We can follow the rules because we wear a belt, right? And we, uh, we, we can follow the rules, uh, both the simplest rules and the most complex rule. And we can uh, we trust our other family members because we've trained with them. We've, we've created uh, uh, in the military, it's battlefield love. I called it fireground love. Right, the good, bad, and the ugly. I've laid on the grinder with you. I've puked with you. I picked you up and carried you back when you couldn't walk. So I have, I have, I trust you. I have the, I, I believe in you. Uh, we have the physical skills to do the job because we've gone out and we've trained. We know the rules uh, are the standard operating procedures, and we physically prepared ourselves because we do PT and things like that. So now our crew is all healthy and good. So is that the best crew to go on a call? Hell yes, it is. It's- <laughs> They are prepared to go on the call, right. but are they mentally, or do they have the mental ability to deliver the best customer service? They have the mental ability to do it, but do they do it? Or do they know how? And do they know what's expected? And do they know what the norms are and what the community wants and what the department wants? I'm the badass, I'm the most badass motherfucking firefighter you've ever seen. I'll prove it every single day when I go to a fire. But fuck those people that we go on. I hate them. <laughs> so so expectations of, 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 
of how things should roll out. Yeah. So this Behaviors. is the, yeah, yeah, this is the this is the the mystery, right? This is the magic pill, the voodoo part of this is I can develop because I've seen the best crews in the world but they suck at delivering the most the thing that we sign our checks that says at the top of our org chart, right? Deliver the highest level of service available in the most professional and uh, an efficient way. I don't know if it says that, but that's forever what it, and ever. Amen. Yeah. So that's what it should say. <laughs> so, so, so can they do that? Well, they, they can, do they want to, or do they know how? Maybe, maybe not. So I've been to companies. Or are they I've, overlooking the simple the, shit that, that's actually really important that we need? So can they translate the communal feel of the way I I deliver, I I, uh, I have with my feel, my family unit, my crew, to the people that we serve? Because people don't understand, again, one of my speeches for recruits is, you understand you've just uh, hired into or joined a service delivery organization. Do you know what that means? I deliver Because we don't make shit. We don't we're, sell shit. No, we're completely yep. customer service. Yeah, so 100%. so I deliver a service. So what service do you deliver? I deliver, realistically, when something bad happens to somebody in the community, my service is to make it stop happening and try and make it better. So, so that's a really wide parameter. So what do I have? I have a tremendously highly motivated, skilled, emotionally, spiritually, physically trained unit to do that. And can they do that? So if every single person on the, that fire company is uh, 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 a football player, an NFL football player that's the fastest, strongest, and biggest, but they hate everybody that they go on, are they going to be effective? Nope. Probably not, right? So... In crew development, one of the things I thought was always very important, and I still hold this true today, and, and Chris has been on national level deployments with me, is sometimes I pick some odd people. I pick strange people that would- They're never not entertaining. <laughs> they, there's always a value. So for me, and I, I believe this wholeheartedly, is I believe in diversity. And I don't mean uh, racial, sexual, um, uh, ethnic or religious diversity. I believe in diversity of skill. Okay. Now, if those, if, the, if that diversity is related to their ethnic belief or their, or their ethnic gender or gender ethics or, or whatever, it's, it's, uh, it's not, that's not, that's just a, that's just a, uh, that's an added value. Yeah. It's added value. Right. It's person for a, the job, yeah. for that specific job. Not, not because they're female, not because they're male, not because they're Chris's best friend. Absolutely. Yep. They have diversity. So, so my, one of the things I, I really enjoyed was I had a, uh, an engineer at fire station 21 when I was a captain named Craig Smith. So Craig Smith was a really interesting dude. So he was a guy, he was a professional rodeo cowboy. So that's num- everybody called him cowboy. cowboy. Still does to this day. Yeah. Right. So number one, what do I know about cowboys? Cause I did a little cowboy and is they're freaking tough as nails and they know how to operate in extremely adver- uh, d- d- adverse conditions. And they are comfortable with pretty much everything. Cause everything out there when you're punching cattle and doing stuff with horses sucks. <laughs> right. So they're, so they're, they're really good at being in uncomfortable positions. Right. And they're training horses. <laughs> which are worse than training dogs. For sure. So he's patient, right? And the other added value with Craig Smith was he was a cop for three years with Phoenix PD. His dad was old hardcore cop. So he had a kind of a a mind like a cop in that he could look at situations and assess people and kind of figure out what was going on. So uh, was he the fastest guy? 
No. Was he the strongest guy? No. Was he the smartest guy? He, he probably couldn't do non-Euclidean mathematics, but that's... Not o- many can. <laughs> and, 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 you know, yeah, he wasn't an orator. Uh, no, he, he didn't wasn't, talk. Uh, <laughs> Slow yeah. talker. Yeah. It, it, yeah. But, Profound when he spoke, but... <laughs> yeah, we, everybody got real quiet. Yeah. He was E.F. Hutton, right? <laughs> when he actually had something to say. <laughs> <laughs> and he, he was tremendous at giving uh, mentoring advice to uh, more inexperienced members of the crew. Not, I'm not going to say in any, a very real way. <laughs> yeah, because he had done it, seen it, and said, "This is what you need to do. Yeah. This is the way you will be successful." I'm going to keep you from doing something really dumb. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> and so, what did he do for me? What What was Craig's uh, value to the crew and to me as the captain? So I was safe with Craig Smith. Craig Smith never got me in trouble with the fire truck, meaning we were going to crash or wreck. I felt safe at a call. So I, I'm working at 27th Avenue in Buckeye in a really harsh Buckeye knife and gun club, high crime area. Everybody, nobody's there trying to help you except the fire department, right? Uh, and they're trying to take advantage of anything they could. And I could turn my back on those people because Craig Smith was there, okay? So the diversity of Craig Smith was he provided uh, safety, security, and well-being to the crew and myself. So is that a tangible thing that we could train him or do something? That was just an innate thing that he could do. I would call them sheepdogs. Right. She was a sheepdog, right? Grossman's sheepdog stuff, right? So he was that guy. So he did that very, very well. Um, The other diversity I had is so I had Mitch Callahan. So Mitch Callahan was an NFL football player, right? Uh, Rose Bowl, or what was he? The Rose Bowl MVP, I think. Yeah, something like that. He has all, you know... Big guy, was he the strongest? Probably. Right. Was he the fastest? Only for about five steps. That's all you need. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, no, because Josh Sigmarth could outrun him. But, but then when he caught him, when Josh quit running, yeah. that was the problem. <laughs> right, yeah. And, uh, uh, and, what, and uh, what did... Um, so Callahan also divide, provided other things is that he could mentor the newer firefighters, Right. So Mitch could say to a newer firefighter, hey, man, this is the way you want to do it. And they had something they could do. And he was other, really good at leading by example. Consistency. Really he, good at leading he, by he, example. He was always ready to go there. Uh, he told me one time, he said he liked being at a fire station with newer firefighters because they brought energy. Mm-hmm. It kept him going True and kept, kept him engaged and he could do something. So the non-tangible of what fulfillment did Mitch get out of it was... The, he got energy and he could help newer firefighters and and he he would he was not he was always the guy that say oh we got to go train again but he was the first guy on the truck right and he always performed at an extremely high level so he had a diverse skill was he the guy that and he provided safety and security to me because I could he was my guy I could bounce questions off of I always tried to have senior firefighters I could ask questions of and were we doing the right thing and I could give them a task on the fire ground and they would execute it, and I would knew it would happen, and it would happen in a safe manner, and everybody would get to go home, okay? Again, another thing people take for granted in the American Fire Service is we train people to a level that we trust them so much that we ask them to do a task, and we never follow up. So, And oftentimes we can't. There's no time. Never, or there's no time, or we're never near each other during that period. So I laugh. But we do rely on the execution of that. 
oh, it's critical to the operation, right? In fact, it's essential to the operation. So I laugh because uh, in the police department, I always laugh because they said I would send a guy to go put a perimeter on this crime scene and then I would call them to make sure they did it. Yeah, firemen would love that. Right. Well, yeah. we don't have time because yeah. we're in we're in this critical task that that we live in a world of of seconds and minutes, not hours and days. For sure. Yeah, short right? duration of yeah. uh, beginning. High middle, intensity. And end. We don't have time to question it. So we'll take. So I'll put it in perspective. So I'll take a boot firefighter on a uh, that just came out of the academy. I don't know them. I maybe have carried on a thirty second conversation with them. We go on a critical fire call, and I'm expecting them to turn the hydrant, fire hydrant on and get wired water to the truck so that we can uh, apply water to the fire. The most critical, basic thing. Do I call them and ask them if they did it? <laughs> no. Or during, do you go, hey, how's it yeah. going? Yeah. <laughs> how's that feeling? Yeah. Yeah. I, so, so do you under, again, to talk about crew development and trust, to, for us to do that, it's a tremendous, tremendous tribute to our training and our development and our ability to execute that, right? So no, no very few in other professions, and there may, there's probably elements of the military where they tell you go and do something and they never follow up. This is, this is how a construction company runs. So I can tell you that for now because we have crews on job sites where your uh, operations manager or your superintendent necessarily um, is not there. So we have to rely on them to do what they need to do. And if they have an issue, they'll call or they, they may, well, we do an update at the end of the day, but I don't know if that's gotten done between eight and 12, like it's, it's supposed to be done. We're just giving them the trust, the knowledge and the experience to do it, to satisfy our clients, you know, on a construction job site. So very, very similar that way. We just don't have that, that, um, that span of control over them because they're all, and it's a lot of work to get there, huh? It's a lot of work. Yeah. And they're all, and it pays off huge. Yeah. They're all over the Valley. They could be 50 miles from this location or 30 miles or 20 miles. And they may hit a couple job sites within a four or five hour period. So we're just, I mean, we tell people all the time, we are relying on you to do the right thing when we're not there and we're going to empower you to do it. If you fuck up and make a mistake, we have your back. Everything is fixable. So very similar. So, so interesting concept, Brandon. So if anything that we talked about so far on this cannot, can it be applied to other professions? 100%. Absolutely. Yeah. The, 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 thing. the best part of this podcast. Yeah. And the, the, the difference is the criticality of, uh, of the fire work, right? So we don't have the ability because everything is, is uh, lives in minutes and seconds. Yep. So we have to be really, really good at it. But again, I, you can apply all these things to any profession. You have to care about your employees, you have to make sure they're spiritually, emotionally, and physically well. You have to prepare them to execute what they need to do. You have to train them and give them realistic expectations of what you want them to do in every situation. So if you send that crew out and say, uh, I need you to do this, and by the way, this is a really hard job because it's got these things going on. If you haven't uh, trained them or have the expectation that they know how to do that, they probably won't be successful. Yeah. And, and it's 100% your fault as a manager, chief, captain, whatever. It's like, we ask that, like I ask that question all the time when, if, if guys are out there, do you have the tools and the knowledge you need to accomplish this? Or did you? And if it's no, that's fucking my fault. Or that's the chief's fault or that's the captain's fault because you sent somebody out there ill-equipped to actually manage that, to, to actually handle that task. 
Yeah, knowledge, skills, and abilities, right? Yep. Translates to everything. Yep. So we do the same thing. So, so I think those are really critical elements of, of how we execute uh, and develop those crew members, and, and it translates into many professions. So how do we, as the boss, and we were talking a little bit about how we translate that into our customer, right? So how do we, so we know how to do it, we're highly motivated. So now that unit has to be able to go out and feel like they can uh, deliver that service. So for me, it was, I always built in, because we didn't, sometimes we didn't always go, we went on some unsavory clientele. Okay. There's there's people like that. The unwashed. There. Yeah, they were definitely unwashed. Un- unbathed is really what it was. <laughs> and uh, so they it wasn't pleasant sometimes. Yep. And uh, so it, and uh, so it was uncomfortable uh, from uh, from an odor standpoint. It was uncomfortable sometimes from a physical sight standpoint. It was uncomfortable sometimes from an emotional standpoint. Right. We'd go on. Uh, a child death or, or an infant code or something like that. And that's really a, a really spiritually and emotionally unhealthy and uncomfortable. And how about the guy that just beat his wife and then he got beat up by somebody else and you have, you have to take care of that guy yeah, yeah. or girl or whatever. So, so again, we respond unconditionally and without prejudice, right? So when we go on without prejudice, we don't care if, we care, but we still execute our job. If you just, uh, if you did something wrong, you just shot somebody or whatever, and you got hurt or something, and the cop shot you, we still treat them, right? We don't care if you're the mayor of Phoenix or you're you're uh, the, some criminal. Which we just do our job. We're so we, yeah. So we have to be able to give that expectation to our crew. So one of my, so I had a, again, I have little simple things that help me because I'm. I'm not a super smart guy and I learned little things to help me along the way to remember because I always, people yell at me and uh, the bosses always yell at us and say, deliver good customer service. You're, God damn it. You, you are, <laughs> so you deliver good, you weren't nice to that person. I'm like, wow. And so I started wondering what's nice. And again, I'll go back to Craig Smith. So we go back, we're in the projects and we go on a call in the projects and I walked through the door and I said, um, how can we help you today, sir? And my, the response was, you motherfucking honky, get out of my face, you <laughs> son of a bitch. And don't you treat me like you're chomping me, you motherfucker. Get away from me. I'm like, well, I thought I was nice. The chief told me to be nice. <laughs> and I was as nice as I could be. Right. And that motherfucker, and he's like, get out of my house, honky motherfucker. <laughs> so I'm like, and Craig Smith says, let me handle this one. And Craig had worked in the area and Craig walks up to the guy and says, Hey motherfucker, what'd you call us for? What the hell is wrong with you? You sick? You need some help motherfucker. Don't you? Okay. We're going to help you. And he goes, thank you. Got to know your audience. Right. Right. So again, that diversity of skill sets, right. Come came into play and then the ability to deliver the service. So I had an unrealistic expectation of what that customer needed. Right. Your nice didn't match their nice. Right. And so... Your cracker uh, 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 vocabulary did not help that guy. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. So so then how do we... So that's that's important that the crew knows what that is. So I always... I, I have my, my little thing to tell my crew was, what deliver good customer service and what was that? Well, that means you're going to respond in a timely manner. You're going to respond unconditionally and you're going to respond without prejudice. And I said, if you do those three things we will always be successful. And they're like, well, what exactly did that mean? I go, respond in a timely manner means we live in a world of seconds and minutes. 
And timely means you need to go right now and you need to execute effectively in a very compressed time frame. Low discretionary time. And we're going to train to that standard, right? So I want you to do it timely because it's unacceptable for us to get a dispatch and to say, uh, I got to finish washing my clothes or I got to finish uh, cooking dinner. I got to finish do that. That's there's an expectation by the community that we're not going to do that. We're going to respond in 10 minutes. So unconditionally, what does unconditionally mean? So what happens when I'm taking a shower and we get a call? You go. What if I'm sleeping? You get dressed on the truck. Yeah, what if I'm really tired? What if I'm like, oh, I'm tired, I'm sick. I think I'm coming down. I think, I think I've got a cold. I think I'm coming down with the sniffles. I can't go. You go. Yeah, nobody cares. No, right. Nobody cares because that's what we're supposed to be doing, a job of inconvenience. Uh, or, or what if it's uh, Thanksgiving and we invited all our families over and we're having a big thing because we do a communal thing with everybody, right? Yep. In fact, we extend it to our, we have our extended family that comes down and we get a call right in the middle of that or right when we're getting ready to sit down. We go. We go, right? It's inconvenient. And then we respond without prejudice because do we care if it's the mayor or the president or the fire chief or the police chief or they're a criminal or do we ask them how much money they have? We don't ask. There's no application. There's no credit check. There's no financial uh, tie to it. You call. We're here. How can we help you? And so if we respond in a timely manner, unconditionally and without uh, without prejudice, is that, a, is that a good service delivery organization? Because we don't have a product. It's the foundation. Right. So, start. so think about it. What if I call, what if I have a problem with my computer and I call Microsoft Helpline and I get put on hold? Is that in a timely manner? If I'm like, not for you, right. maybe for them, yeah, but not for you. Yeah, right. So they're not delivered. <laughs> they're in the service. And when I go to uh, the doctor's office and the first question is, I need your insurance card or can you pay? So are they delivering the best service they can? No, they're, they're the, the impression. There's no sense that they care. No, there's no sense yeah. they care. In the or inf- what they're demonstrating what they care about. It's a for-profit model. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's a little bit different yeah. than, what, than, uh-huh. than our model is. Right. And, but nonetheless, it's still, a, it's still important. Yeah. Right. Right. And so, uh, so how, so now we're, where, it's where they show what they care about is they seem like they care more about the money and the profit than they do care about us, right. about the, what the, the customer they're delivering the service to. So that is how we extend what we do in our, in our unit to the community. We respond in a timely manner, unconditionally, and without prejudice. And if we do that, the community understands that we care about them, whether we we actually care or not, you know, that's a personal thing, but, but we still give the impression that we care because we've done executed X number of things with the most highly trained and skilled unit there is. And we care about you. We care about what we're doing and we don't have to like it. So if we go to, if you go, so we go to uh, target and we're going to return or we go to Costco and we're going to return something that we don't like. Do we care if they're happy or sad? The person we're returning to. We don't care. What do we want? We want our money back. <laughs> I just want to get my money back. I don't give a shit if you're happy about it or sad about it. I just want my money back. And I want no hassles. So do we care if firefighters are happy when they deliver this service? Or if they appear like they're happy? The customer no. may or may not. 
and that, if they're that dying, not, do they care if I'm happy? No, they child? do not no, give no. one. <laughs> they don't care if your fucking hair is blue. Yeah, <laughs> just save me. That yeah. uh, so that's that is really important because the community. When we say to, we're we're on our we're developing our crew, and we say I want you to be nice to people. What, what do you want me to do? Smile. Yeah, you want right. me to be? You want me to tell them a joke? You want me to wear a belt? Yeah. <laughs> what do you want me to do? I want you to respond in a timely manner, unconditionally, and without prejudice, and execute your job as a unit and give make their day better. That's what mm-hmm. I want you to do. And if you can be respectful and you can smile while you're doing it, great. Because right? I think respect is is really important because for our community is is the ability and I think those three things translate to I respect that you called me and I respect that you're having a bad day and I'm going to give you the dignity of giving you the best service that I can give you. Okay, so how do we demonstrate that at Station Twenty One? So we live next door to a pallet yard. Okay, and there's a pa- <laughs> this is this this definitely transition or translates into crew development. So, uh, and in that pallet yard, so a lot of the businesses down in the inner city, they hire homeless folks to stay there and guard, if you will. Uh, at least there's a body presence. Again, it relates back to the guard dog thing, but this is a human being, except some of them don't have teeth, so it doesn't really matter. The, some of my best friends don't have teeth. Right, exactly. <laughs> Including my mother. <laughs> so in, in this pallet yard next to Fire Station 21 was a guy named Ronnie, and Ronnie lived in the pallet yard. And so, uh, with or without me developing the crew and making them take care of the community and feel better, they decided the crew is going to take care of Ronnie because they see a guy and they make they want to make him part of the communal unit and they want to make him part of the fire station because he's close proximity, he's a good guy, and he's down on his luck, and uh, they're going to make things better for him. So, uh, and it probably pisses you off too. <laughs> Actually, I, I, so I, so what do I look at? I look at it as tremendous success, right? So it's the, it's a fulfillment for me because right. those guys can't even turn it off for a homeless dude in a pallet yard, right? right? They're so, and they're going right. to make him better. Who's so. drunk half the time, gigantic pain in the ass, but they loved him. <laughs> he cried all, he come to the station and crying. And uh, so Ronnie had never seen the snow he had never been to the ocean. He had uh, a really deprived life, right? He had no money. He had no money. Yeah. So he did payday loan stuff. So there was loan sharks that would come and give them, and they would take give you money and, and charge you 30% interest and then break your legs if you didn't pay and all that stuff. So guys felt bad. So he would, because he'd spend all his money on alcohol, right? And, uh, and that was his whole life cycle. So our guys now at the fire station are like, we're going to help him because we can't help it because... Chief or Captain Krushak has created a monster in us, and we're going to help him. We're all now dog trainers, right? We're going to train him the ultimate, oh, yeah. the ultimate uh-huh. junkyard dog, right? We're going to train yeah. him, and so uh, so what happens is they they make a bank account for him. Jesus, they start taking care of his health. Uh, they make sure he's okay. Uh, they look for him when he's gone, and they give him spiritual, mental, and physical well being. And he gets better and feels better. Uh, we take him fishing. We give him life experiences. And uh, he actually does better. And he is indebted forever to us. Would I believe truly he would die for Fire Station 21's crew? I believe that. I too. think to this day. Yes. If we could find him to yeah. this day, I think. Ronnie, if you're out there, motherfucker, call us. Yeah. <laughs> 
So, uh, so, uh, and so my, my funny story with Ronnie was that our, the crew cared enough about him that one day, uh, the police, we hear the police on, uh, on the loudspeaker outside at the pallet yard yelling, put that knife down or we will shoot you. Stop what you're doing. And Ronnie is out in the pallet yard with a butcher knife drunk on his ass, yelling and screaming with the gate locked and and the police are standing with guns drawn and they're going to shoot Ronnie. Jesus. Right? So uh, Fire Station 21, A-Shift has nothing to do with that and they are going to fix this. So uh, one of of us engages the police and says, we know him, he's not going to do anything, Uh, let us take care of this. Police response was, Stand back, asshole. We're going to kill this motherfucker. <laughs> <laughs> Appropriate cop response. And uh, so while so then it turns into Fire Station 21 A-Shift working as a team, and some of the firefighters distract the police so they can't <laughs> shoot Ronnie. And another one, uh, I think it was Josh Segabar, jumps the fence and goes inside the pallet yard with the knife-wielding Ronnie. And the police are like, oh, my God. They look over and they see Josh Segabarth and they're like, he's going to stab him. We have to shoot him. So the firefighters jump in front of the police and, and uh, to stop the bullets. And Josh Segabarth runs over and goes, I got this. And he goes, Ronnie, give me the knife. Ronnie gives him the knife and goes, now knock it off and go back to bed. Ronnie goes back in and lays down and Josh comes out and gives the knife to the police and everything's fine. You ever started about, you ever thought about starting a cult? <laughs> I think you'd be super successful. <laughs> I, th- I, uh, I think I, you have five acres, right? I'm looking for an island. Yeah, yeah. 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 Uh, I got five I, acres, you can put it to un- use. Unintentionally, I may have. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, uh, so again, the, the, so what is, what is uh, Scott Krushak do? Scott Krushak walk the fire and then the, the police put their guns away look at us call us a bunch of assholes and speed, <laughs> speed off squealing their tires and nothing's changed then <laughs> uh, so what happens to Scott so Scott walks back into the station with his heart soaring like an eagle because the crew has extended beyond their own unit to the community to actually save the life and put themselves in peril to save a member of the community see it now the Krushak compound <laughs> the Krushak cronies <laughs> <laughs> that's it so, so, uh, that, so there's all these pieces and parts to it. And I hate to go back to, sometimes it starts with wearing the belt. <laughs> yeah. Right. And so that, yep. But how long did that take to develop that crew to get to that point to where, uh, that could happen? And that's, that's not, that's, that's a specific leader, a, a specific individual with innate abilities that can make that happen. Not everyone's going to be that good at that, but you can. But everybody can strive to, to get that good. Yeah. Well, but, it's the collection of people. It's yeah. the right timing. It's there's a yeah. whole bunch of chemistry yeah. stuff. Too, yeah. So so uh, it's it's uh, what is it? Six degrees of separation, right? So is that what they call it? The Kevin Bacon deal? Well, <laughs> well, every all these things intersect, and right. then people tend to move together. So uh, my funny, one of my funny stories is John Hinton. So you know where I first met John Hinton? Uh, in a hallway with a flat with a pen light. <laughs> no. <laughs> all right. So John Hinton was a student teacher at my high school. Oh boy. <laughs> and he was a uh, he was he used to help coach the basketball, and I was on the basketball team. And John Hinton was one of our helpers that helped coach the team. And not, later in my surprise life, I see him. Right on the fire ground, right as a firefighter. So it's six degrees of separation. So I believe again, there's there's uh, there's Zen at work that people intersect, right? And people tend to migrate to what they 
believe spiritually and they tend to migrate together and they come together. Because they like that feeling. They like the feeling. It makes them feel good. So yeah, certainly. So is Station 21A shift where everybody would feel comfortable. Absolutely not. But the ones that migrated to that, that felt like that made them comfortable. And I have to tell you, they were some really extreme personalities. Right. Because they needed that stimulation. So they were the dog. Every one of them was a dog that ate the couch. <laughs> right? You can't leave them alone. And they all weighed over 200 pounds. Yep. They all ate. The, they were every one of them was that dog that was foaming at the mouth and ready to work all the time, anytime, and wanted to go for a walk at five o'clock every day. Just needed purpose. <laughs> and you really want to give it to them. Right. And so for me, that was so was it. So after a while, is it hard for me as as the boss or the leader or whatever you want to call that, that person that directs and takes care of everybody, was that hard for me to do? You're the great odds. Pay, pay no attention to the man behind the curtain. <laughs> so, so, so to get there, like you said, I think it was, it's hard. I think it's a lot of yeah, hard work. Yeah, for sure, it's hard. Yeah, it's not nothing easy. easy it's about a lot that. of hard work, and I have to uh, I have to do things that are uncomfortable for me, and I have to do things. But then, when it all comes together, is it the easiest thing ever? Yes, absolutely. Yes. Right, it just goes. But it only lasts for so long, right? And I, I don't mean the the leadership or any of that, but yeah, that group of people only stays together for so long, Damn. and then it's cyclical because then you'll start people will start going elsewhere, promoting, doing things, and then you get this new crop and you ha- and then you you have this whole brand new interesting project of building trying to build it back. It may not be the same. It may be uh, it may come very close with with slight differences, but be equally satisfying and equally effective. Absolutely. So so I I also had another and this is just a personal thing for me. I had a thing where people would always say, "So what is your key to success in the fire service?" and I say, I change everything every two to three years. And they go, what do you mean you change everything? I said, I would promote or I would go to another station. I would, my crew would change. I would do something different. I joined the FEMA team. I'd be a paramedic, whatever. I'd change something to challenge myself to keep getting better. Get outside your comfort zone. Yeah, because I and I, I I just have and I still do that today. So I still I still go and and I do something different. So I learn a language. So I learn a language when I'm 40 years old, right? So I go and learn Spanish, which was critical. Another funny story is critical to operating at Fire Station 21 when I was driving down the street, going to a call, and every uh, every sign on the street was in Spanish. <laughs> and then I go to the call and I realize I can't communicate with the people I'm trying to deliver service to. So is that my fault or their fault? It's my fault. Yeah, we have to adapt. Yeah, right? Because if we're going to be good. You're well, the I'm delivering the service. Right. Right. right? So the, if I don't provide the service that's required to the community, I'm failing. You mean you don't want everybody to adapt to you? <laughs> What the fuck's wrong with you? So that th- that's the leap, right? That's the leap. If I've got the baddest ass firefighting machines ever, but can they deliver the service? Can they adapt to the environment and deliver that that service of of fire suppression, uh, emergency medical services? I'm just going to help you because you're having a bad day. Can they adapt to that environment every time? Yeah, are they, they willing? Yeah. yeah, and and if they can't, then they're probably not. You're probably not successful. Yep. Right. And the other thing is being able to identify. So when Scott drives down the road on Buckeye Road and every sign's in Spanish and they go to talk to their people they're serving and they speak Spanish, does Scott have the ability to realize the environment changed? Right. Conditions in the fire changed. So we changed the plan. Right. So the the communities changed 
and we didn't. So we identified that, and then you know, then we learn Spanish and we do whatever we got to do. And how fun is it to hear all these people talking shit about you, and they don't realize until you start speaking Spanish to them? I, 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 <laughs> dude, I, so I, well, that that was, and 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 uh, I learned I learned quickly because I learned uh, I learned um, school Spanish, right? Yeah, yeah. And right, they they talk they speak Spanish circa de frontera, which is a little bit oh, different, yeah. right? And so I did have people that would come to me and say. Hey, white boy, you don't know how to speak Spanish, so just quit talking and let me talk. And then they would talk, you know, and, and then they would do and then they would interpret for me, which I totally understood what they were saying. But that was what it, that was what was required at that call to execute the call yeah. in the most effective manner. Right. For sure. And uh, and uh, so the funny the, my speaking Spanish, the people that I could communicate the best were were people that were highly educated Hispanics that lived like from Mexico City. Yeah, they're, they're speaking Castilian. Oh my Spanish God, dude, that was yeah. so clear. I was like, that is perfect. I understand everything you said. And then somebody would speak Spanish or I would get a Puerto Rican or somebody that spoke super fast and I'd yeah. be like, oh, I'm fucked. <laughs> <laughs> I got every third word, but I think you're trying to tell me this. <laughs> so, and Chris had gone on those calls a lot of times when we would go, when the, a lot of the community, especially as the, the, that area evolved, that community became a predominant Hispanic community. Right. Yeah, yeah, and it definitely is today. So that was a very, really, really interesting uh, environment first do and and a really really good company because I didn't actually work there I, I was on B shift they were on A shift gotcha. so I spent a, just a ton of times doing AWRs with Trent oh, Adams and gotcha. and Mitch Callahan and and so it was my second home on gotcha. the fire department so that's where I spent a, a vast majority of my time I did learn some really really important skills uh, Walter Lorzell ta- taught me that. One of the nicest things you can say to somebody in uh, Station 21's first do is nice tooth, ma'am. <laughs> um, uh, that was a big one. And then, uh, and then the sheer diversity of things that would happen that you, that you had to learn to be able to just manage yourself based on the conditions. Is, and I remember one of the funniest incidents is uh, and actually hearing and seeing somebody covered in food. Do you remember this? Mm-hmm. And uh, the that wife, like a good Friday night. The, the wife tried to kill the husband by by putting a pot of beef stroganoff over his head. <laughs> goulash attack. Yeah, goulash. <laughs> attacked by a pot of goulash. <laughs> yeah, Got a goulash and, Overwatch on him. <laughs> it was all and whatever it took at the time, right? Yeah, yeah, without a doubt. Um, so it, it, a couple interesting things I just want to make sure we talked about. So the Station Twenty One thing was always interesting to me because, so uh, for the better part of that time. Uh, we and two characters we've already talked about is Josh Agabarth and uh, Mark Tierman. They were on Rescue 21, and it's one of the only times I can remember in the, my Phoenix Fire Department career where they actually had to make two guys leave the ambulance. Oh, no, that happens to Station 3 all the time. Well, uh, <laughs> and, it, and it has happened since then. I, I totally agree. But this was, was this was like... yeah they uh, Pete Hobel was mad at Mark Tierman because he would not leave Rescue 21. Oh, it, was, it, was a, it was a big, big deal. And, you know, we're... You know, uh, 200 ambo shifts comes along, and it's you know people are backing up to get their yeah. shifts done, and it's it's a it's an old problem now at this point. But uh, so, but that was for a very very significant reason, yeah. and um, and then and then interestingly, because 21's first do was so unique, um, there were re- 
in my career, there's been really interesting calls that have happened down there. You know, you have Air Liquide, which is this big, uh, um, uh, an industrial complex that does uh, all types of gases and specifically welding gases and that kind of stuff. Is that place is on fire and it is on fire and things are blowing up and they're mowing through buildings and it's badass and and engine and rescue twenty one are first due and you can't you you're slow rolling from a mile away trying to get in here. And so there are crews or uh, there are things happening where rescue 21 has to do things without the supervision of engine 21 in a super high risk environment. And they're making really good decisions and that, that are typically way above and beyond what rescue guys make. And, um, and that has everything to do with all the things we've talked about leading up to this. So, um, uh, the the value of this development and and I think investment is probably the most important thing we've talked about today if we summarize it in one word is that investment that we make and everybody's going to be a little bit different and everybody's going to take and need a little bit different stuff but the the investment pays off in the situations of air liquide at the most risky end of the spectrum right. and maybe in the and the least risky thing is when Ronnie yeah, is, is investing in in Ronnie and other things. There were there were other interesting characters in that first do that that uh, <laughs> were, that, that we they took care of, um, and uh, and so today you see that Mark Tierman's a company officer, Josh Segabarth's a company officer, Mitch Callahan's a company officer, Walt Lorzell was a company officer and a battalion chief. Um, uh, uh, Tierman. Uh, chief officer now too? No, he, he's a captain on Engine Two C ship. Okay. Uh, he did. He was a FEMA guy for a long time. Gotcha. Um, but they all have really good companies, and they all are doing things in a very similar way. You know, in, in their own with their own, own unique spin for who they are. But they're all highly reliable companies. They're all highly reliable captains who are actually putting out really good products. And the beneficiary is the community. Um, fire department definitely benefits, but the community is getting good, uh, great service because of it. So it's, it's cool from my perspective to be able to see this downstream effect. I'm, 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 a, I'm a product of it without a doubt. Uh, and, and believe me, I've taken many crazy ideas to Scott and he's never told me n- no once on, on crazy ideas. Super poor judgment on his part. Well, yeah, we, <laughs> didn't mean we did it. We can talk about that later. <laughs> and the really, the, there's still hurt feelings over yeah. some of them, uh, not by us, right. but other people. Oh, yeah. And, uh, so you mean fireman's feelings get <laughs> yeah. hurt easily. So, uh, yeah, so it's the, the company new company officers really need to start to understand that that investment now and it may feel like it's 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 very much a long-term thing but that time goes so fast and we're and you know we're 20 and 25 years past the things that we're talking about right now right and to look back and see the the value of that investment you know that money you were putting away that and you never ever pay, really paid attention to it right uh it's huge. And if we do that across the organization and we do that across all the levels of the organization, um, we are infinitely going to be in a positive, productive state with with not only who we're bringing in, but the, uh, how we're developing them inside the fire department to to uh, 
to take care of the community. We'll say we, we talked about it a ton in training is so the city charter says we have two jobs, right? Uh, uh, save lives and property. Pretty simple. You know, we've got a, you, 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 my favorite Einstein quote is if you don't understand a complex problem or if you can't explain a complex problem, simply you truly don't understand the problem. So our job, save lives and save property, protect property. Um, and so we're going to do it in a shit ton of ways. Um, and the way we get to the most effective uh, ability to do that is this type of investment, this type of development in our, the individuals, in the groups, and you're teaching them how to do it for somebody else. You're teaching them how to do it for the next group of people. Uh, and that that's where you get longevity. That's where you get, uh, you don't, uh, we don't have this great era and then it just withers and dies. Because there was there was this constant re-energizing or this uh, this cyclical effect of of picking good people and turning them into good uh, firefighters. So I'll tell you a little Air Liquide story. <clears throat> so we're, we drive up to Air Liquide as we're driving down Buckeye Road. Now this is about two two three miles away from the fire station. We're driving the fire truck, uh, a propane tank, a large ground-mounted propane tank detonates and we feel the heat wave come over the state over the fire truck it like goes over the entire community uh the propane cylinders those 20 pounders are flying through the air and blowing <laughs> up and bouncing like like little fire grenades flying around so you got to remember so i was always super happy because when we'd pull up to a call a fire call the crew the ambulance crew, because and one of the things to, to elaborate on what Chris said is that ambulance crew was part of the crew. They weren't the ambulance crew. They were part of Station 21. So we referred to ourselves as Station 21. So I invested in them by saying, you're part of this crew. You're going to go to fires. You're going to go to calls. And yet we're going to value what you say and what you do because uh, you have a lot of value to our unit. Yes, because they can be used as a poor example often. Oh, dude. <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah. Well, and 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 uh, and and again to get off track just a hair. So one of the things that Chris said is super important is I trusted those guys away from me. So you got those are that is the most dangerous uh, from from the the personnel chief HR perspective. One of the most dangerous things you can have is two junior guys riding around on a on a hundred thousand dollar <laughs> piece of equipment, rolling the window down and looking at chicks. With no supervision. Oh, With yeah, no totally unsupervised. Oh, yeah. I'm like, I'm like, how am I gonna, how am I gonna instill? Okay, so I'm gonna give them the belt lecture. I'm gonna give them, <laughs> the, we're gonna eat together lecture. I'm gonna give them. We gotta take care of people. And uh, oh, but all that is not as powerful as this lecture. So that lecture was, if you two motherfuckers go out and do something <laughs> stupid and get in trouble, I will be the first one to discipline you and I will discipline you to the extent of the, the rules and procedures. And they're like, well, what do you mean? You're not going to cover us? I go, no, because if you break the rules when I'm not there, yeah. I am going to be your worst enemy. And they're, so be aware of that. Don't think you're going to go out and do something stupid and then, the, oh, Khrushchev's going to cover us on this one. I won't cover you. And they're like, so you're going to get mad at us? And I'm like, yeah, really mad. <laughs> <laughs> okay. And you know why? Because I'm going to criticize. I'm, I am going to discipline the dog when the dog runs out in the street to get hit by a car. Right. 
and that and it will be ruthless and it'll be swift and it'll be relentless and then the dog will never run out in front of the car true statement but and I'll I still love you yeah but and I yeah. still love you but the reason I'm doing this is because I love you yeah right and so they understood that and they're like oh and I, I laughed because at some point they would come back and Josh Sagerbart goes I would I told them that we were going to get in trouble if we did this <laughs> so we didn't do it <laughs> perfect so uh, I digress back to Air Liquide. So I've prided myself. So we have the engine and the rescue. Go to Air Liquide. Shit's blowing up. It is. I you know everybody's puckered. I'm like my my brain is going like the Rolodex as fast as I can go because I'm like I need to stage people. I need to figure people need to stay away. I'm not going to kill a bunch of firefighters. This is bad shit. People are going to die. Uh, we need to do whatever we can do. And how, how am I going to execute that? So when we normally would pull up to a fire, those back doors would fly open, that rescue would fly, and I would just watch those SCBA bottles disappear into the, into the hazard. This call, we pull up and stop, set the brake, and there's no doors opening. <laughs> and I, I look in my window, and there's my two rescue guys, <laughs> Segabarth and, and Tierman, standing there like, I'm scared, Dad. They're, they're looking at me like a dog waiting to get a bone. I'm scared, Dad. And I'm like, and uh, and I look back, and I and the firefighters in the back seat are like, "What? What do you want us to do?" I'm like, "Do the same shit you do on every call." Yeah. I said, "Go save some lives and property," and they're like, "Okay." And they jump off the truck and they go and they're going to evacuate and do things. And then Sagabarth, I open the door and Sagabarth's like, "What do you want us to do?" And I go, get all those motherfuckers that are going to die because they're too close and move them out and tell them they're going to fucking die. Okay. <laughs> and they took off, right? So, so that, was, that was bottom of the well stuff right there, right? They had got to the point where I, I actually hadn't trained them to that because that was such a catastrophic call. I hadn't trained them past that Super level. Super difficult to train them for. Yeah, because yeah. that is the one in a million, right? Yeah. That's the one in a million call. So, but what I was really happy with was they were confident to do their job. They were prepared to do their job and willing to do their job. They just wanted to verify that it was the right thing. <laughs> For sure. And like uh, a lot of the stuff we talked about, team development. So this stuff that's been, you know, done since the Civil War, but like like in a different way, like that Dick Winters uh, stuff is up there. And, and if you're talking about this, you look at number two from, from Dick Winters, lead from the front, say, follow me, and then right. lead the way. And that's what you had to do for those guys at that time because they were in an uncomfortable spot where they couldn't do it. So. Yeah. Yeah, so it, it it was good stuff. So that that's all really super fulfilling stuff, and they uh, and I, I am fulfilled uh, by seeing those guys. Their crews are successful, and they're they're they they do a good job. Uh, command officers use their head. The ones that I like to think I help train, and they <laughs> they uh, they understand what they're they're respectful. Uh, they believe in uh, servant leadership, and they they try to execute correctly and do what's right uh, in a respectful manner for the the people that they're that they supervise. Um, they listen to what they say. They they try and be to take creative ideas and institute institute those into the organization. They're open minded. They're they accept diversity all those things that are super important. And, and Chris said something that's really important is, uh, and I tell people this because I have a thing I do on organizational placement and where does everybody fit into the organization because I truly believe we fail tremendously when people operate outside their, uh, the expectation of where they should be, mm -hmm. right? And uh, so I call it the rule of sixes because I, I always wanted a postulate or a theorem named after me 
And I couldn't come up with anything. So then they, I was like, well, they have the rule of nine. The nines was already taken. Yeah, the rule yeah. of nines was already taken for, for Burns. And uh, uh, and I, I'd like to have a maneuver, a procedure named after me. And I couldn't think anything. So I came up with Khrushchev's rule of sixes. You're going to have to start a cult. Yeah. <laughs> So the rule of sixes is I'm going to operate, and it's a geographic uh, uh, representation of where you're going to operate in the organization. So uh, and what I mean geographic is uh, in within six feet, there's uh, a physical placement. Yeah, it's a, phys- it's a physical placement of how you operate. And so where do I fit organizationally? And so I say there's five organizational placements in, in every organization. There's a political one. There's a policy one. There's a strategic one, a tactical one, and a task one. Traditionally, we only really talk about strategic, tactical, and task, right? But as we move into the organization, there's also a political thing that we do, and there's a policy thing. People that make the rules that expect the organization to perform, and they really don't care about strategy or tactics, right? So at the highest level of the organization, which I'm going to call the uh, political element, there's an expectation of what we're going to do as firefighters. And all that stuff in the middle is going to do that, okay? So at the lowest level of the organization is the task level, and we're really responsible for things that happen about six feet around us, right? So if I'm a firefighter operating on the fire ground, I'm going to operate, so I'm going to pull ceiling six feet. I'm going to squirt some water, the nozzle, everything I do is is real close to me, and I don't generally get out of that six-foot area. I I generally operate in that. And the expectation of everybody on the organization is I'm going to operate. I'm starting a a line as a paramedic. I'm innovating. I'm treating a patient. It's all within six feet, right? Next level of the organization is 60 feet. So now I'm operating at a task or tactical level. So at 60 feet, I'm responsible for all those task level operations and things are going on around me in a bigger area. So I have yeah, a can big, have multiple crew, multiple people working in them all that. Yeah, so I have a, a bigger and that's generally captains, right? Because they're the ta- at the tactical level they're they're doing the um how am I going to execute this? I'm going to have these crews do this work and then those crews will do pull ceiling, start IVs, whatever it is. And then, then there's the 600 feet, which is chiefs, command officers. There's the 6,000 feet and 60,000 feet. So relate each one of those to those different levels, political policy, tactical task. And it's 6, 60, 600, 6,000, 60,000 feet. Because at the highest level of the organization, up in the political and policy level, we're responsible for 60,000 feet worth of stuff all the fire stations and, and the community and all those things and the fire chief is responsible for all these things. Now, when we get in trouble is when we operate outside of that geographic representation. So what happens when a firefighter decides to engage um, a city council member about how the fire department operates on the fire ground? It's usually pretty awesome. <laughs> well, it's certainly spectacular. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Yeah. <laughs> Right or what? Ha- Exciting. Yeah. Or what happens when a command officer decides I'm going to show you how to pull ceiling? Right. Yep. So those are those are huge. So the reason I, I I'm telling this story is because I was a shift commander at Station 30, operating out of that North Shift Command, and Dorian Jackson and that whole crew and all those guys are there, and they're they're trying to they were talking about 
op how they operate on calls. And so I gave them the rule of sixes. I said, this is Krushak's rule of sixes because I don't have a postulate theorem. So I'm going to go with Krushak's rule of sixes. And I told it to them and they're like, hmm, interesting. They get a dispatch, right? They go on a call, they come back. And uh, we're sitting at the communal eating table. And uh, one of the firefighters goes, well, chief, I had to use what you said. And I go, what do you mean? He goes, Dorian Jackson got in my six. <laughs> I told him, you need to get back to your 600 and stay out of my six. <laughs> That's my six feet and you don't belong here. So get out of here. He was trying to prove your proof wrong. Right. <laughs> he tested it, right? Yeah, he, he tested it in application, yeah. right? Yeah. So, so some of those things are very true. So when we operate outside our organizational place, there's an expectation we're going to do that and it screws up the whole organization, right? Absolutely. So firefighters and crew development needs to know where do I fit? Where do, what do you want me to do? Yeah, some boundaries, right? Some, uh, where are the bumpers on this thing where, mm -hmm. you know, because we empower, we empower a lot of decision-making from, from, from line level firefighters, but where are, where, 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 Where's the ends of that? And so that gives them a really simple way of remembering, I'm responsible for everything within this six feet. Everything that happens right here, that's my area. And nobody else should come in here. And if somebody else comes in here, they shouldn't be here. And I shouldn't be in somebody else's area. Stay in your lane. Right. So it's an illegal cha lane change, right? Yep. So you can't change lanes without that's, that's against the rules if you will. So Chris said an important thing is when, what is the expectation at the highest level, at the 60, 600,000 feet political level, what's their expectation of the fire service? Save lives and property. Yeah, we're doing the most fundamental thing we're supposed right? to do. All day, so when we roll through the door, remember we talked about going through the door and they don't care if you're happy, sad, whatever, because you're coming in a timely manner uh, uh, without without prejudice and and, and uh, all, all the stuff we talked about. You're going to walk through the door and you're going to do that. And really all, what do they want? They just want you to save their life or their property. When that firefighter, when we tell that firefighter at the task level who's squirting water, starting an IV or doing the thing, what are they thinking about? They're the task th level. They're thinking about saving lives and property. So where does it get screwed up? Let me get outside. There. In the middle, mm -hmm. right? All that stuff in the middle is where that gets screwed up because we don't know how to do the, the bosses don't. They lose sight of what the real expectation is. And the real expectation is save lives and property because that's all the city manager and the mayor and the community and everybody wants to happen is save lives and property. And when the firefighter walks through the door, it's the simplest thing. I'm going to save your life. I'm going to save your property. So for all of us, if we know that, again, we're developing crews and all that, when we tell them, what do we want you to do as a firefighter? I want you to pull ceiling. I want you to squirt water. I want you to engineer to drive the truck in a safe manner. I want you as a captain, if we're a battalion chief, I want you as a captain to manage that crew. But the end goal is save lives and property. So does that give us carte blanche to do whatever we want? No, absolutely not. <laughs> right? We can't. So what we can do, though, is we can say, uh, this goes back to the belt. There's a set of rules and regulations, right? And again, I'm a rule bender, so I, I try and bend the rules. So I may put the belt on, but it might be backwards, or it might, have not, it might not fit exactly right. But that's okay, because the rules just say wear the belt. Yep. <laughs> 
Right. Doesn't say where you have to wear it either. <laughs> you got to season it on, <laughs> on your own way. I think that's a perfect way to kind of wrap this thing up and end it. I mean, there is another portion of this that I think we could get into because I'd because i love to hear, and this is for another time, about how uh, Khrushchev's dog training applies to <laughs> command officers and developing that team. But I think that's for another yeah, time. that's but, a bad one. But I can tell you, for me, Chief... Um, I only have 14 years like on the job. When you were on, I was five years old, stuff like that. But these are, I'm dating you, but these are, what's coming out of your mouth is for me as a younger captain and guys that are out of class and they're younger captain, like this stuff is gold for us. Like as, as I'm sitting here listening to you speak and, 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 and Chris speak, I'm like, Jesus Christ, I wish I would have had this three years ago, four years ago, five years ago, six years ago. So I appreciate you being on here and just taking the time. I'm going to let Chris wrap it up, but I mean, man, this was, this was awesome for me. So thank you. Yeah. So I, I again, um, uh, in trying to think about things that matter to our company officers, whether they're new incumbent, whatever, and our, and our chief officers who are working in the field and managing the, the hazard zone and the work we do is trying to come up with things. All right, what what is of value? What what do they want to know? What do we struggle with? What 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 isn't simple? What isn't what is the stuff that you can't just write down and here's your checklist, follow the checklist. This is the kind of stuff that is not checklist shit. This is there is some innate uh, understanding of things in this, but there is some fundamentals that I think you did a great job and always have done a great job of talking about to help our members in those positions learn and develop and and actually get a plan of okay what are the things i need to develop in me so i can develop in other people because you're now responsible for other people um so i think that's a uh, i think that's an important thing um it's interesting how leadership uh weaves into all of this it's interesting how customer service we leave uh, weaves into all of this and then uh the most important thing to me is actually how much we enjoy doing it, how, how good of a time it actually can be. And, and that's a huge value. And, and, and those are the strengths I think you have. So that's, that's one of the reasons why it really, really important to me that, that you come in and we, we talk like this. So I, uh, yeah, I appreciate it and thank you. And, and I would like to talk about what you were talking about earlier because there are, uh, they're same, but, but different from command officers and, and, and we did it and experienced it and it was, it was, pretty damn cool so i i scott anything you wanted to to say to wrap this thing up no just thanks for the opportunity this is really great brandon uh, again this is that creativity right we oh can't, gotta have it <laughs> yeah you can't uh you can't stifle this stuff and uh and i i just hope this really helps out like you said younger firefighters that's that's always been my passion and my investment was taking the most uh, inexperienced people instilling some foundational principles in them and then watch that stuff bloom and blossom over time and and uh that's what i get out of it Perfect. Well, thanks guys for listening. Again, you can find us at Make the Difference Podcast on Instagram, on Facebook. Uh, you can find Chris at what's your Instagram? Red CP Stew. That's what it is. Um, if, please get on Apple Podcast, Stitcher, uh, whatever. Leave a review. Tell us what you like. Tell us what you don't like, because uh, we want to make this thing better every time. But appreciate you guys listening. And uh, that's it for number two on the Tactical Hour. It was awesome. Thanks, guys. <laughs>